Konnichiwa, and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. <laughs> I'm David Vax. And thank you for listening. David. Yes? How you doing? I am right now wishing you'd told me you were going to do that so I could figure out how to say my name is <laughs> I know. in Japanese. Um, uh, but that's, that's one of the three or four countries you visited, right? Indeed, yeah. yes. So Anyang, and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. Okay, and the third okay. one? I don't remember. <laughs> what was the third place you went? Hong Kong? Uh, China. Okay. And then uh, and Hong Kong, but uh, it's either Mandarin or Cantonese at one of those places. And uh, uh, China can go straight to hell, as far as I'm concerned. China can? Yeah. You didn't have a good time there? No. Uh-oh. Is oh, that, boy. Uh, a shared uh, experience between you and, uh, and Jenny? Or and just... the people we were with. Like, we all agreed, like, China broke us. Huh. It was really interesting. Oh, did you, you went as part of a group? It was it was us and then just another couple from uh, Chicago that I think you might have met. I don't remember Scott and Tracy, but I, uh, I definitely have met Scott. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, uh, I didn't realize you went as a it was a couple's trip. That's yeah, that's adorable. I'm jealous. I am jealous of your trip. Apparently not of Hong Kong. No, Hong Kong or, was great. Oh no, okay. China is the problem. What part of China did you go to? Not Beijing. I've never been Beijing. Yeah, and um, at the Olympics there. Uh, they did yes now i'm surprised any of the olympians made it out because they would have had to breathe pretty heavily and that is not the most breathable air in the world i've heard i've heard about that seeing the sun struggling to come through that <laughs> thick that thick layer of smog is uh quite uh quite tragic okay um no uh I, of course i'm uh, my inclination is always to speak uh, negatively of things but it was a it was a good trip in a lot of ways i got to be on the great wall um which was kind of amazing um and there are, and i i posted some photos on posted some photos on uh, twitter of a there's pl- a beautiful place called uh, the golden pavilion which is outside kyoto um, i've been there you've been there it's pretty cool. It is pretty cool. It's nice and peaceful. I like it. Listeners know that voice. We, we shouldn't even have to wait to introduce. Right. It is Scott. I like to call him the usurper. <laughs> All right. Um, but you know what? I listen to those episodes. I don't have anything to worry about. Um, <laughs> I didn't listen at all. No. <laughs> I listened to, I listened to, uh, 10 minutes of the third episode. Cause like, I don't know. Masking it. Um, I don't, oh, okay. I don't think I remember. I don't think I knew that was the term. Right. But, um, uh, but do you give a fuck about masking? In that's, listening that's to question. it, I think I am more inclined, but not heavily, to agree more with Scott. Big day. But um, just rare just that you say bit. that. I know. Because no, uh, I hate you so much. I know. The thing. I think more than once we made jokes about how you weren't going to be listening to the episode. I, wow. think, I think we joked with Jackie Cation about like instead of doing whatever we we're going to do the episode, just going through your shit and talking about that. We didn't do it. Enjoy. You want to go through my book worth watching currently available at worthwatchingbook.com for $15. I think I see a copy. Oh, uh, you um, see several copies. It's not selling great, David. Um, uh, all right. Any other, uh, so you didn't um, watch any movies. I didn't in, watch any movies. Uh, you did on the plane both ways. Yeah. I, my, but we've already talked to listeners have already heard the movie journal, right? Which we've already finished recording. No, not really. there's a lot of layers to this. Uh, I did go to the Toho Theater, with the, which has a big uh, Godzilla head on top of it in uh, oh, Tokyo. But uh, they weren't really playing anything that I was interested in, unfortunately. But, um, yeah, uh, it's a lot of people inquired about the food thing because uh, I have food issues. I'm a super taster, as I like to say. Well, my understanding is in that part of the world, there's KFC everywhere. So you can weird. Get, you can it's weird how much KFC there is. I remember... Uh, my friend 
Patrick, you know, Patrick's been on the show, Indeed. Patrick Starr, you know Patrick. Yeah. Uh, when he went to Japan, when he came back from Japan, he was telling me, uh, well, I was interested because I know baseball is a big deal in Japan. So I was like, did you go to a baseball game? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, let me ask you this. We go to baseball games, we eat popcorn, hot dogs. Yeah. What do people eat at baseball, baseball games in Japan? And he was like, KFC mostly. Yeah. Uh, pretty much everywhere we went, uh, it was there. Um, and we ate at KFC once cause we were curious and, uh, portions are all essentially the, the same, but, uh, every meal comes with an egg tart. Hmm, uh, good? I didn't have it. I gave mine to somebody else. Um, and you know what? Once they ate it, I was like, actually that looked pretty good. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if I would have liked it, but I, I wish I had tried it. Um, so, uh, but the, the food thing mostly worked out. We did, we went to a uh, Korean barbecue with friend of the show, Colin Marshall, who lives in Seoul. Yeah. And then, uh, we found our way into, we did not know we were walking into a karaoke bar. Uh, but we were, yeah. and that's awesome. Uh, so I took a photo of Colin Saw singing it. a song in Korean. He does speak Korean. Um, I, here's a fun thing. So this bar had multiple rooms and some of the other rooms, they, there wasn't karaoke in those rooms. Those were just like essentially meeting rooms. And, uh, it was very strange. It was an odd bar. Um, so I started, of course, singing the gambler. Oh, okay. Which Not brought, your other go-to karaoke song, which is Werewolves of London. They didn't have Warren's it. Oh. They didn't have it. I had to make do. I went with the gambler, obviously. And then I went with uh, burning love by Elvis. And then I went with uh, ring of fire, the Johnny cash version. Um, but, uh, when I got to the chorus of the gambler, the uh, Korean business people uh, that were meeting in this other room poured out, gathered around me, uh-huh. and we all started singing it together. <laughs> and they were like clapping me on the shoulder. I'm like, "What is going on?" Awesome. I didn't know that Kenny. Look, if they love KFC, maybe Kenny Rogers made it over. Um, yeah, although not his roasters, unfortunately. But um, that's fantastic. So that was fun, and then um, yeah, and just some just some. Uh, interesting developments. Uh, I'm not. Okay. So I wanted to go to the forbidden city in Beijing. Mm -hmm. We are all scheduled to go. Son of a bitch. Donald Trump was, uh, (laughs) was there that day and I wasn't allowed in. That's awful. Yeah. That's that trip has been on the, on the books for two years. (laughs) And that was when we were going to go see the forbidden city. And, and, uh, Scott and I, uh, got, uh, interviewed by some Japanese reporters, uh, who were, you know, again, Japanese reporters. And they were asking us like, what do you think of all this? At which point Chinese military took the reporters (laughs) away and, uh, I didn't see them. Oh my! All right! Yeah. Wow! Pretty rough. Um, oh. A lot of military checkpoints. Before you left, I asked, "Are you going to be?" Well, I think I asked, "Are you going to be in South Korea at the same time as the president?" But you were in China. At the same time. Yes, yes. Uh, we kept missing each other, and then that glorious day, he kept me from doing a thing I really wanted to do. Yeah. Um, but uh, really ruined our plans for the day. Unfortunately, right, well, I've decided I'm I'm against him now. <laughs> here's what. I, here's the thing: is like part, of me, just, part of me just like. Cause my friends were like, Oh fucking Trump. And I, which is understandable. But I was like, look, every president does this. Here's where I get angry. He's not going to appreciate it at all. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's yeah. my frustration. Um, so here's what I will say. Just a little bit of culture stuff. And I, you might've heard of it. Um, I've heard of Japan. Culture. I'm not going to address that. <laughs> Japan does toilets very well. All right. Nice. That's what, how you found it to be. That's not how ah, I found Japanese toilets to be. Sl- 
I'm gonna, I'll, I'll get where you're going. Okay. My, like in the hotel. Sorry, in the hotel. Talk is not my. <laughs> just like the seat is nice and heated. Yeah, and that was kind of oh, nice. Really? There's a lot um, of settings. I'll give you that. There are a lot of settings, which is strange. Right. Yeah. Um. So on one hand, it's like they've, and then like there's like a like a in public uh, settings, like you could push a button that like makes a noise. So like if you need to make noise, right. uh, no problem. So that's on one. So they run the gamut. On one hand, you've got this futuristic toilet. On the other hand, you have what is referred to as a squat toilet, yep. but what I call <laughs> a fucking hole in the ground. Just a hole in the ground. I mean, it has a flush function. Yeah. But it's pretty much just a hole in the ground. Oh, <laughs> it was so horrifying. And people said like, well, some people, you know, it's, 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 they probably did that. You know, like older people probably use that when they were children. I'm like, that's right. fine. Grow up. All right. Yeah. Uh, this is, it's the one instance where I'm fine being an ugly American and judging that culture because Jen had to use it. And she's like, yeah, there's a lot of splashback. <laughs> so it's not even that clean. It's uh, certainly not clean. Yeah, And I can't imagine if you're older, it being easier to use at that point. Not at all. No. I mean, I, there are more limber people, I think overall, but how limber do you gotta be? Boy. Yeah. I, uh, I had to use one once and uh, wasn't a fan. I, I, I apologize. Uh, I needed to use the restroom. Yeah, and there was a there, and it was in a train station, but it was in it was in Kyoto, and it was a pretty nice train station. Right. So I went in and uh, uh, the stall. Somebody came out of the stall, and I saw that there was a squat toilet. I was like, "Well, I guess I'm just going to hold it." Uh, and I thankfully, the family mart near the train station had a a good futuristic toilet that would be the interesting thing some bathrooms would have both some would have both so you'd kind of wait for the good stall yeah yeah and part of me is just like hey guys if you want to just crane your head not even that far to the <laughs> left you'll notice what is referred to as a pedestal toilet um and you'll see how that's better in my opinion and yes i feel limited in saying that but i i'm glad that you agree with me but i think it's also in most people's opinion because the more modern places had the more modern toilets it's yeah. not like the more modern places just had the hole yeah like you know hey i get nostalgic right uh I, there are things i'm sad when things go away i came back to find out my gym closed Aww. and i was very sad about that and i was like oh man and even though my membership got transferred to a much better gym which i'm excited about i was like i like that facility i get nostalgic for stupid things as well yeah i don't understand the nostalgia for the squat toilet sometimes you just gotta let it go so to speak exactly i don't like that at all um but yeah so so that was uh that was a fun experience and uh and uh, unsurprisingly in china uh wow mao Zedong is just everywhere i'm sure he's just he's there's just a giant picture of him on the front of the forbidden city which seems like a bit of a slap in the face to the old emperor but yeah. um i guess that's the idea um so yeah uh i think i mean there's a lot more to talk about i i enjoyed my trip but it was also quite stressful quite taxing um and i'm glad to be home i feel like that's most travel though like you're always i always feel like the first couple of days going into a trip you're like why am i doing this this is way too much work and then you get there like this is awesome and then by the end of you're like oh i'm so glad it's over yeah it's my switzerland trip probably could have gone on a few more days and i would have been happy i I liked that place a lot but uh but after the first week asia kind of broke me okay because like it's like, I, I don't expect everyone to speak English. Like that's right. a, that's a dumb expectation. But I'm just it's like I'm very aware that I don't speak the language, yeah. and it's getting tiresome. 
working around it, like working around it. And that's, I don't blame them. Of course not. Yeah. It's just just the situation. Yeah. And then, uh, and then, uh, we went to Seoul and, uh, Seoul is a pretty great city. I liked it a lot. Right on. Um, I think Seoul and Hong Kong as, as far as the cities go, were my favorite. I know I'd like to go back to Hong Kong. I haven't been there since I was in college and I wasn't as open to the whole international travel thing and Mm. as fond of many, it's many delicacies. So I feel like now I'd really love it. What's interesting is that we, um, so we went out to dinner with, um, a friend of our, a friend of uh, our friend Scott's, um, and she is Korean. She lives in Hong Kong, but she, uh, and she's married to a man who's from Hong Kong, but they also used to live in Shanghai. And so she's kind of experienced all this culture, uh, in that part of the world. And she talked about Hong Kong as this, this place that is changing tremendously. It is, you know, kind of, I don't know how you'd say it. It's kind of like a part of China, but not really. Yeah. But over the last few years, the, the, the culture and the inhabitants of Hong Kong seem to want to be more Chinese. They're embracing more Chinese culture. And that means limiting a lot of things as well. Yeah, for sure. uh, And changing the way the kids are educated. And she said like within, in her opinion, within five to 10 years, like Hong Kong is not going to be that different than China. Oh wow. Which is uh, a sad thing. Yeah, for sure. So like, because there's such a, uh, such a rebellious, I like such a rebellion against the idea of British influence or Western influence influence that they're embracing this other thing that is much more limiting, um, yeah. which is interesting, I think. And I think what makes it or made it such an interesting city is that it was really a blend of two cultures. Cause by the time yeah. I went, it would have been 2008, I think. And so it had been back to China years. for about yeah 11 years. And so it had kind of re-assimilated in some ways, but still retained That's nine years. I thought it went back to China in 1997. Oh, sorry. Sorry. I thought you were talking about between 2008 oh, and no. 2017. Okay, no, I see. Yes, yes. It, yeah. When, when the yeah. British uh, relinquished it. Yes. Yeah, so there's still some of like the Western influence there, but it felt like yeah. uh, kind of the best of both worlds kind of thing. It was a very interesting blend. It, it felt in many ways like Casablanca. Like yeah, everywhere totally. I went, you just heard tons of different languages yeah. from all over the world. It was uh, it was very odd. Um, but I was, I, I was happy I, I went there. We went to, uh, uh, not Monaco, Macau. Okay. Um, which Ooh, is, did you? I did. Yes. I want to go to Macau. Did you go? Did you gamble? No, I That's wanted where all the to. Casinos but, are right. Yes, yeah. and not to mention some very, very dilapidated houses that uh, I don't think they want you to look at. Hmm. Um, and so, also, speaking of mix of languages, a lot of Portuguese speakers yeah. there because huh. that yeah. was a Portuguese colony for a long time. Yeah, it's. You know, I learned a lot about about the area, and uh, I was very. I was very, uh, I'm excited to have been there. I was really excited to have been on, uh, you know, walked along the great wall. Um, but I'm happy to be home now. All right. One more week of no Tyler on battleship pretension. <laughs> and Scott would have been the official new, ho- new co-host. Yeah. Just like that's how it works. Haley in the Florida project. We couldn't let you be here for a month to a right. residency. <laughs> you have to go stay at another. <laughs> All right. Um, uh, anyway, not everyone's seen the Florida project, but, uh, you should, um, we'll talk, you heard me talk about it in the BP movie journal, I'm guessing. Um, okay. Before we get to the topic, we, I don't want to spend too long on this because it's going to be a long episode probably usually is. Um, I want to ask what you guys, uh, your opinion on the whole, uh, controversy about the justice league rotten tomato score. <laughs> Cause I know, and I know Scott, I know you are on record as not liking Rotten Tomatoes in general. It's terrible. 
I don't. I, I I think it has its. I think it has its purpose, but there can be a danger in putting too much stock in it. Like I think when I hear about people like looking around tomatoes and seeing a score and saying, "Oh, I don't want to see that movie. That score is too low." That's almost that, exclusively how people use it. Uh, so. that, is, that is frustrating to me. But to get sort of a general idea of what a certain group of critics are saying about a movie, I think it's useful. It also seems to. For some reason, runtimes get populated on Rotten Tomatoes earlier than IMDb a lot. <laughs> so I would say, I would say more than half the time I check Rotten Tomatoes, it's to see what the runtime of a new movie is because IMDb doesn't have it listed yet. It's interesting. We, I don't know why that is, but anyway, for those who haven't followed this story, um, and I'm sure obviously it's been resolved by the time you're hearing this because uh, the movie's come out. But um, from what I hear, they're not uh, publishing it until well, I guess today. Uh, today, this recording. Yes, yes. Tonight, I guess. Right. Yeah. Um, they're not. They're, they're withholding the score and apparently the the, the reviews, the, the little capsules, you know, the the reviews. Um, again, I don't think I don't care that much about tomatoes, but I do think this is really gross on Warner Brothers' part. I really hate it. Okay. So I wrote a paper last quarter called uh, The Vulgarity of Modern Film Criticism. And Rotten Tomatoes played a very large role in that paper. And it's, it's, it, had this happened while I was writing that paper, it would have factored in. Mm-hmm. Because I'm not 100% sure why Rotten Tomatoes did this. I have a couple of theories. Well, they are owned by partially owned by Warner Brothers. To I, me, that's you can't. I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, <laughs> but you can't separate those two things. It could it even could if be it's that. not influenced from Warner Brothers. Rotten Tomatoes should know how this is how this looks. See, and it looked to me like they have gotten so much flack for being like unfairly biased against DC. Like there was, what was it? When Suicide Squad came out, like somebody started a petition to uh, oh, a, right. a poorly spelled petition <laughs> uh, to like get it shut down because like they're they're biased. It's so it's so idiotic because it is just an aggregator. But and but like so maybe they thought, all right, you know what? We're gonna hold off. We're gonna let people make their own decision so that we can avoid any claims of bias. Um, but of course in doing so they, there's just uh, claims of different bias. So that's one thing. And then, uh, but as far as my paper goes, I, I would have been very excited to hypothesize all kinds of things about, uh, them trying to, um, embrace when I, when I heard that they are only holding back the score and not mm-hmm. the reviews that I thought I was excited about that. Cause I thought like, Oh, that means they, they want to direct people towards the actual, discussions of the films but then once i heard they were doing they were holding everything back i remember thinking like okay well who knows what why that might be well the i mean the reason they're doing it is because they have a show like a internet show or whatever and they wanted to reveal it on the show I this see. is this isn't even like they did it with bad mom's christmas just like a week or ten ago, right. but no one cared <laughs> I, I remember some people getting upset about it actually okay um but this is the one that looks bad because it's warner brothers and also right. because of the history of critics not liking the DC EU yeah. uh, movies. And to me, I do buy that the main reason they wanted to do it was for the show. But I also think they have to be fucking idiots to not realize how it looks when a company owned by Warner brothers is deliberately withholding yeah. potentially negative reviews. Even after the embargo has lifted, uh, I think it's, 
it's moronic to me that they didn't they didn't see that this would be a problem. It, <laughs> I don't actually think there's a conspiracy, but I'm still furious at them. Yeah, it's not a, even if it's not a conspiracy, the fact that it could look like one and that someone somewhere is going to catch it because it's not a hard thing to catch. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's just like, come on guys, someone somewhere in the company must've been like, Hey fellas, you know what just occurred to me? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, we're all owned by the same people and this could look, yeah. Uh, but I believe Metacritic, like that didn't like, they just published it. And I think it's like 51 on Metacritic. Yeah. But not that that matters. The mainstream doesn't use mainstream. People don't use Metacritic. I don't think. Do you? Uh, I don't get that impression. I, I heard, I heard either one. one woman mention it at a Lemley one time. She's like, <laughs> Metacritic really liked this. We should go see it. That's <laughs> the only mention I've heard of Metacritic outside of uh, cinephile circles. She, when I, I think she's just like what I was like stubbornly using MapQuest yeah. for years after Google Maps <laughs> was clearly taking over. Like I was like the last person to adopt Google Maps. I have to say I was like weirdly loyal to MapQuest um, for a long time. Not uh, a very good service, by the way. Often took me down <laughs> dead end roads. Yeah. I mean, I lived where, where Tyler and I lived for three years at the corner of Wayne and early MapQuest never realized that you couldn't turn right onto, right. onto, uh, Sheridan or Broadway, whatever it was uh, at the end. Because remember, yeah. it, it dead ended in a parking lot. Yes. And there was a side, there was the, the road, uh, what, early, no, Wayne, no, early yeah. didn't actually connect to the main road, which it gives us Broadway. Right. That has been too long. I know. Um, and yeah, for four years or three years or whatever, as if MapQuest Ma- never like got that through their heads. As if MapQuest saying, like, "Come on, wimp!" Yeah, <laughs> that curb is ropes. Only, <laughs> yeah, that curb's only a problem if you let it be. Um, okay. There, there is. Uh, I feel so bad saying this, but it made me laugh, and it's been around for a while. But I saw a shirt. Uh, somebody posted on Facebook. There's a, a shirt that has like a picture of a tiger and a snake on it, and says, "Every zoo is a petting zoo, unless you're a little bitch." <laughs> and I don't like that word, but it made me laugh really hard. Uh, um, yeah. Um, okay. The one other question, since that didn't go anywhere uh, for a top of the show topic, right? We said I mean, stuff about it. Okay. This is the advantage of thinking all of Rotten Tomatoes is trash. Is them making stupid decisions like this? Like, yep, more trashy decisions by a terrible website. I was going to make a joke about that woman who liked Metacritic, but you know what? We got to move on. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, let me ask you. Okay, something else that is going Justice League related. Maybe this is a topic someday. You guys okay. can tell me. Now, if you're... Do we do topics anymore? As a, yeah, we do. <laughs> Scott and I just did one last week. Okay. Sure. Um, we were really on topic for that. <laughs> <laughs> we were about to pretension on topic. Um, okay. If you're reviewing, as a critic, you're reviewing a movie that's part of a franchise. All right. Like, bringing in stuff from the previous installments into your review is... I don't think that's... I try to stick to the movie itself as much as I can, but I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Yeah, right? no, I don't no, think so. No, it's like bringing in a director's filmography or an actor's filmography. Okay. It's like, you can mention stuff. So let me ask you this. If you're reviewing a movie that you know there are more parts coming, is it okay to bring it to, like, maybe give the movie, cut the movie a little slack because it has potential to grow as a franchise? Do you know what I'm saying? I think no. I don't think I would cut it slack. Yeah. Um, I mean, it might explain some dramatic choices and you could bring it in that way, but I don't think it's worth cutting it any slack. All that says to me is they're too timid that they won't think up anything interesting for the next installment. (laughs) Yeah. And my review of Thor, the dark world, like a big part of my thing was like, okay, everything about this film suggests it is a placeholder and they needed to do another Thor before they get to age of Ultron. Um, and yeah, like you can still do tremendously interesting things with films that are essentially uh, 
way stations to, you know, on, on your way <laughs> right. somewhere else. I mean, when you think of the Harry Potter movies, like they're all based on books and, and one's going to build to a, to another. And I remember number six being feeling particularly transitional, um, from one thing into another and like really setting up seven mm-hmm. and, at times I felt a little bit frustrated by that, but I think there was also, I think the filmmaker also felt a certain degree of freedom in that. And he had, it allowed him to get kind of silly and kind of dark and just be like, well, look, this is not, there's not a lot of big stuff happening here. So I'm going to use the opportunity to have like these odd moments that yes, I recognize her in the story, but like when, when Harry gets drinks, like the liquid luck and like, I have the freedom now because this is not that big of a plot yeah. uh, heavy film that now I can have this goofy, delightful performance by Daniel Radcliffe. So it can provide somebody a lot of freedom or it can be very limiting. And I think often they choose limiting. All right. I was just curious. Um, are you ready to pay some bills? Are you feeling rusty? Let's take a look here. <laughs> I've been doing this for the past few weeks. I how, think I've been doing you, it. Okay how'd you job. like it? Uh, how do I like it? I mean, yeah. I'm always uh, happy to highlight. I stand by our sponsors. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so I liked it just fine. But who are our sponsors? Well, I'll tell you. Well, one of them. Uh, this episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $5.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline, which, by the way, I'd never done before. Uh, okay. And I didn't really know what it meant until my friend Scott had downloaded uh, streamable content that he could watch on the plane when you, you know, when you're un- unable to like connect to the internet. And I thought like, Oh, that's what movie does. Yeah. That's exciting. <laughs> Cause like I'd never had, reason to do that um so i do it uh, with spotify all the time i'm i make a playlist for the day while i'm on my home wi-fi oh then click it to you know put it as yeah. you know, download it to my phone or whatever and that way i'm not streaming music all day when i'm driving around or at work hmm. you have a new uh, playlist by the way uh sorry i stopped doing the playlist because i realized like it's just different songs by the same artist that's what my playlist <laughs> okay yeah be. yeah i this is a thing we did once as a joke halfway through the summer of 2016. And now I do it every season. So yeah, my fall playlist is up, but movies not. And then then we committed to that to no one's interest at all. No one cares. Okay. I just like doing it. So currently available on movie is Jean-Luc Godard's, uh, Pierrot Le Fou. Am I saying that correct? You are. All right. Great movie. Uh, start. Well, uh, I'll ask you more about it in a moment. Starring Jean-Paul Belmondo and, uh, Anna Karina, not Anna Karenina. That's a different thing. Uh, what's the film about? You've seen it. I have. Uh, it's kind of a lovers on the run movie. Uh, what are the odds? Very, uh, I don't mean to say that cynically, very, uh, topically, uh, Jean-Paul Belmondo, uh, grabs his much younger babysitter <laughs> and hit the road <laughs> together. Uh, and it's also, it's a transitional film for Godard right before he got into more politically aimed films. So it has a lot about the Vietnam War in there and it has a lot about the 60s revolution, cultural revolution in general, but also like a lot of his movies at the time, it's also mainly about his and Anna Karina's relationship. Yeah. Uh, so it's a, it can be a, a, at once thrilling and very uncomfortable watch. Hey, all right. Uh, I like that combination. Uh, so this film is part of a seven film series dedicated to Godard, who Mubi, all right, they put this in the description, which I found fascinating. Mubi considers Godard the greatest post-World War II filmmaker. Whoa. That's uh, pretty big. Um, I don't know if that means 
directly after World right. War II or up until like now everything's post-World War right. II. So uh, I'm not or sure. Or it could mean specifically in that kind of post-war environment. Yeah. It's a lot that could mean by that. Yeah. It could be really specific and thus a pretty good compliment right. or it could be really broad and the best compliment ever paid to any filmmaker ever. Um, but that's not the point. The point is there is a special offer for listeners of Battleship Retention. You can try movie free for a month. Just go to movie.com. That's M-U-B-I.com slash Battleship to redeem now or you can go to BattleshipRetention.com and just click on the movie ad and go and get to it through there. And I want to tell you about tweakedaudio.com. That's where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. Tyler, I'm sure you're back to using them every day. I don't know. Maybe you used your tweakedaudio.com earbuds uh, while you were traversing the world. Not only did I. Uh Uh-huh. My wife, Jen, did as well. There you go. I'm um, sure you listened to all kinds of uh, great stuff. I, 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 let's see. I'm in the habit now of saying, what did I listen to with my tweaked audio earbuds today? I spent a lot of time listening to Iron Maiden. It's pretty normal for me. I uh, listened to this new Bjork single. Okay. Great. I'm a diehard. Haunting? Is it diehard, haunting? A diehard Bjork fan. No, it's actually cute. Oh, all right. Um, it's usually one or the other. Yeah. And I've been listening to the... Uh, uh, the Courtney Barnett, Kurt Vile album that they did together, uh, which is which is uh, all fun stuff and all sounds great on my tweakedaudio.com earbuds. You can find earbuds of your own at tweakedaudio.com for a low, low price. But if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Tyler? Yes. Scott? Hey. Let's get into it, shall we? Yes, um, I'm so glad I'm back for this episode that I have nothing to contribute to. <laughs> I, I asked David a couple of times, are you sure Tyler wants to be on this episode? And yeah. he was very sure you wanted to be on this episode. He did not ask me. Oh, all right. <laughs> we, just, did, we did talk about it before I don't remember that at all. <laughs> I'll just weigh in and be, you know, comic relief or whatever. Um, yeah, that's probably, uh, yeah, that sounds good. Okay. We, uh, that movie sounds like a real winner. That's how I'll say it. Um, so, uh, Scott and I were both, both spent a lot of time at AFI Fest this past week. Mm -hmm. Scott was covering it for battleshipretention.com. Correct. Um, did you, I didn't even look at your past. Does it say battleship retention on it? Nice. Um, and I was just, uh, there seeing movies because AFI Fest is free and awesome. Um, it is an awesome week of every year. I would say this year, I don't know how you feel. Overall, maybe a little bit under- underwhelming? Yeah, I would say so too, but I also didn't see as many movies as I do most years, partially because I took time out on Sunday to go see the operatic adaptation of Persona that was playing downtown. It was awesome. That sounds great. Uh, and then I was sick on Tuesday. And so you get sick, yeah. Yeah. Um, but we still managed to see plenty of stuff. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think we're just going to go alphabetically and uh, as usual, more more stuff that Scott that Scott saw than I saw because Scott was the one officially covering it. But I am kicking things off alphabetically because I saw the only movie on the list that starts with A, um, and that is Michelle Franco's April's Daughter. 
Um, or as the on-screen title yeah. says, April's Daughters. The um, so it is officially like apparently it's official English language name in all it's marketing like and on the internet situation yeah. yes. <laughs> is April's daughter. But the turns you know, out we're all April's daughters. <laughs> um, you don't have to like be fluent in Spanish to see that it is clearly a plural word, and the subtitle on the screen mm, right. is plural as well, uh, and it definitely means two different things um because april does have two daughters uh in in the movie but the 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 main premise is there's two girls who are sisters or half sisters they have um the same mom different different dads um and they live in their like they live in their family's vacation home in puerto Vallarta. they're not really a close family at all but the younger sister is um 17 years old and pregnant she's seven months pregnant when the movie started she has dropped out of high school and she not having a very good relationship with her mom at all, doesn't want her mom to find out. Um, and the older sister, uh, you know, who has a job, um, calls the mom anyway. And the mom, uh, played by um, Emma Suarez, um, who was known for last year's Julieta. Mm. She's a Spanish actress, not a Mexican actress. The, ca- the character is also Spanish. They do direct. They, they do address <laughs> that she's not Mexican. Um, uh, anyway, she comes to stay with them, and uh, at first she's a big help to when the baby's born, and then um, you sort of start to get an idea why the family is not that close. Uh, and basically, what this movie is, how I described it, uh, well, I, when I was t- my wife and I saw it uh, together, she she liked it too, I think. And I, I did like it, but it, it's basically like, imagine a sort of half season's worth of like a scandalous primetime soap opera, but with all the camper melodrama drained out of it. Like, so it's a very sort of naturalistic, realistic approach, except that every 20 minutes or so, there's something that makes you go. <gasps> <laughs> like, and they still kept the organ sting in there as well. <laughs> and uh, like, I'm not really exaggerating. There are, uh, there were a lot of gasps from the audience every time. Really? Something. Yeah. Because like, uh, April, like she's fucking crazy. <laughs> like I'm, not, I'm sure there's a more, you know, this person in real life might have a more medical diagnosis, but she's fucking nuts. And she occasionally just does shit that where you're like, Oh my God. Um, and there was one group of patrons who walked out. I don't know. My wife was like, they seemed like they were in too good a mood to mm. like, they weren't huffing and like stopping out. But to me, they left right after one of these big like changes in the story. And they, I think they were laughing and because they were, they thought the movie was stupid and they were happy right. getting out of there. Um, so I, it's basically uh, Michelle Franco um, made a movie in 2014 or 2015 called After Lucia um, that I really, really liked. Um, this was before we were doing the movie journals, I, th- I guess. So I probably never really talked about it. Um, yeah. uh, and this isn't that it sort of has the same look and feel of that, but uh, it's it's not as good as After Lucia. And I didn't see his last one, the English language one he made. Chronic, yeah, with Tim Roth. Um, it was two years ago, I think, or last year. I think it came out last year. Okay, but played AFI two years ago. <laughs> okay, um, so uh, it's. I, I think uh, this is a good way to like get into this year's AFI fest. I had a lot of this kind of reaction where I left a movie going, okay, that I liked that movie, but I wish I had liked it more. And I feel like that's how I felt about so much shit that I saw at AFI Fest this year. 
Scott? Yeah, I can dig it. Uh, I was that was mostly my reaction to most of the films I saw. Uh, one of the major exceptions to it is the one I just saw today, and I'm still processing a lot of ways. Uh, Claire Dini's Bright Sunshine Inn, uh, which also has another on-screen title. I think the official title is Let the Sunshine In, maybe abroad, and then it's the more esoteric Bright Sunshine Inn here, <laughs> which is not the way that usually goes. Uh, but yeah, I have not seen that many Claire Denis movies, actually. I've only seen Bastards and White Material. I understand this is slightly different in that it's not relentlessly punishing, as I understand most of her films to be. Have you seen many Denis movies? I've only seen a couple, but I, weirdly, I've seen different ones than you. I've okay. seen uh, Beau Travai, um, which is awesome. And then there was one, I think it's called Friday Night. Okay. Uh, which is also really, really good. Um, yeah. But, the, but those movies also are very different from one another. Oh, okay. I need to look up if it's called Friday Night. Interesting. Um, anyway, this one concerns a middle-aged woman played by Juliette Binoche, who has, at some point prior to the film's beginning, divorced her husband, has been living alone for however many years. Uh, she's an artist by profession, and is very... She's social in that she has a lot of friends, and she meets a lot of men, but she doesn't have a kind of stable romantic relationship, and is definitely desperate in searching one out and the movie kind of follows her going from relationship to relationship and some of which on screen last a minute or two and you can kind of glean how they might have began and ended um but she only Claire Denis only gives the complete portrait of maybe one or two of them um and you just kind of have to infer from the way Julia Binoche's character acts how the rest might have gone and it's really heartfelt and earnest portrait of that kind of desperation while having a keen sense of what Benoche's character might be doing that could be turning so many men away or turning herself away from so many men. I think a lot of times movies with this kind of setup kind of reduced to, well, men, what are you going to do kind of thing? And (laughs) the film does have those pleasures. There are plenty of men who are just complete assholes and who behave like completely uh, selfishly and uh, narcissistically. And so it allows you those laughs, but it also incorporates real three-dimensional characters, both on the men's side and then on her side. You know, you see how both people are kind of feeding a negative situation. Um, yeah, like I said, I mean, I just saw it today, but I, if it was coming out this year, it's coming out next spring. Uh, but if it was coming out this year, it would probably be my number one film of the year. I really wow. loved it. Yeah. Fantastic. I'm excited. And, Kind of bummed I didn't make time for it. Well, I was only playing like late last night, then this afternoon. So yeah, I knew, <laughs> and I knew it was playing late last night, but I was uh, too too tired. Now I hear you. Um, all right, so um, next up for me is another Mexican movie, but this is an older one. Um, and I talked about being underwhelmed, but the next two movies I'm going to talk about are actually great. But I meant I was underwhelmed by a lot of the new stuff at AFI. AFI also tends to show... It varies year to year how much, but they this year is much some, more so than yeah, usual. Some older stuff because this year they had two different sections of older movies. They had one that was, and I'm about to talk about one from each section. Uh, one that was all movies from 1967 um, because that's 50 years ago, and also apparently the year that a- AFI was founded. Um, and then the other section was a Robert Altman retrospective. Mm-hmm. They showed 12 Robert Altman movies over the course of the thing. Um, anyway, but I'm starting. Did they with, show Mash? Uh, they did show Mash. Yeah. They show McCabe and Mrs. Miller. They did show McCabe and Mrs. Miller. <laughs> did they show right, Nashville? Let's go. let's go. Yeah, Nashville. Okay. Oh, let's see I'm if you can get all twelve. Yeah. Okay, no, all right. you started it. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, did they show Long Goodbye? Yep. Yes. Uh, let's see. Well, four. I'm going to jump ahead now okay. and go to the other ones that I, the other obvious ones, The Player. Yeah. Shortcuts. Yeah. Gosford Park. Yep. Yes. Prairie Home Companion. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, 
They're, right? They do 12. cookies fortune. Cookies fortune. Not cookies fortune. That's too bad. Yeah. They do secret secret honor. No, not secret honor. Sons of bitches. Um, Buffalo Bill and the Indians. No, that's him, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. I'm trying to remember. I can only remember two of the remaining three. I think I'd or recognize no, them. The remaining four. Okay. Uh, I feel like there are probably like three that I'm like, r- oh, that are not. really obvious and I'm not thinking of them. Okay. Um, I mean, there's one that I doubt you'd ever guess. Uh, quintet. Nope. Uh, let's see. Is it called three sisters? You're close. Three, eight sisters, <laughs> three women, three women. Yes. Yeah. Is that the one um, you didn't think you'd guess? No. Okay. Um, what's the one I'm thinking? Come back to the five and dime, Jimmy nope, Dean. No, Jimmy Dean. No. Vincent and Theo. Vincent yeah, and Theo. Yeah, hey, that was the one I didn't think you'd get. All, all right, right, you yeah, got two more. Yeah, go fuck yourself. Um, <laughs> you got two more. <laughs> this and the two you have left. Kansas City. Kansas yeah. City. All right. You got one more, which is the other one that I saw. Oh really? Okay. Well, that's going to be the, the, the only one that I saw. At the, I think I'm. Time. I think I might be running dry. Honestly. <laughs> oh, uh, the company. Nope. Uh, no. Go back to long goodbye times. <laughs> like Elliot Gould. Oh, California Sweet. California Sweet. Yeah. All right. Split. Not California Sweet. Oh, yeah. That's, that's <laughs> the one with the. That's the Neil Simon. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. No. Uh, so we'll get to California Split in a second. No, first, I'm going to talk about a 1967 Mexican film called Los Caifanes, which means The Outsiders, or at least that is the. I don't know if that is literally what it means, but that is the translation. Um, but they didn't go by The Outsiders because. Uh, that's something know, else. Jesse Hinton and all that. <laughs> yeah. Um, Francis Ford Coppola, that whole thing. Um, now, Los Capanes is about a, uh, there's, it starts out as sort of like, it's in Mexico City in 1967, there's a, like a cocktail party at like a upper class house or whatever, and all of them decide, hey, let's, you know, set our cocktails down, let's go to this art show downtown or whatever. And this one couple, she's like, she's like, wants to go, he wants to go home, this will be their dynamic the entire movie, she's adventurous, he's a total fucking pill. Um, that's like, he is uh, the, something Natalie and I saw it together, and it was like, the word we came up with, like, that is, this guy was like, what the word pill was designed to describe, he like just is a total wet blanket and a pill. I anyway, was gonna say, uh, is yeah. a blanket, is he dry or wet? Yeah, um, and so they stay behind their arguing, and so by the time they decide that she convinces him to go, they go outside, and everyone's left. There's no uh, cars for them to get into to go downtown, so they decide to walk and see if they can find a taxi. It starts raining. They duck into an open car on the side of the road just to get out of the rain. They start making out, and they're like, oh, turns out this car belongs to some uh, ruffians, mm-hmm. some outsiders, oh, you might it. say. Uh, and so it starts out a bit threatening, but then they kind of like become friends in the movie. It's one of those like all in one night movies. Mm. It's basically about this rich couple hanging out and causing mischief across Mexico city (laughs) with this, uh, bunch of like drunkards and criminals. And, uh, but that dynamic continues. Like she wants to keep going. She wants to keep drinking. She wants to start getting into trouble. She wants to steal shit. She, she wants to like, live this night because you get the impression that being married to this fucking pill, (laughs) she's like, she doesn't get to do a lot of stuff uh, a lot of the time. And he keeps dragging her back and there maybe starts to become some chemistry between her and one or more of the Kafanas. And you wonder like, you know, it sort of becomes like, is he, is he pulling her back because he can sense that there's chemistry or is she becoming attracted to this guy because her husband's a pill, <laughs> you know, uh, and that sort of becomes the dynamic across the night. But it uh, it's a movie that sort of 
I think changes gears beautifully in a way that like I could describe the different sort of scenes it, or, or types of genres it runs through. It's like, it literally has a like screwball type of scene where they're the, the cops are chasing them around a funeral home and they keep like finding clever places to hide <laughs> and then pop out and the cops are like chasing them around <laughs> in circles. So like it has that sort of screwball thing, but then there's also scenes that are like, really menacing where you're like, these guys, uh, aren't, you know, these aren't lovable ruffians. Like these guys could be trouble if you piss them off or if they get drunk enough or whatever. Uh, and they sing songs and it's a movie that goes all over the place. Um, but not in a way that I'm complaining about in a way that I actually think is, uh, really invigorating. Uh, and it's maybe this and California split are my two easily my two favorite things that I saw at the festival. Mm. Which does not necessarily bode well for the festival. Uh, yeah, this is this is uh, what I'm saying. Um, but that was and it was a um, that was a DCP uh, of a new uh, restoration that was undertaken by the Mexico Film Fund. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a whole uh, thing on screen beforehand <laughs> saying um, what it was. Uh, and then California Split was next. This was on 35 millimeter, um, which apparently is good because I don't think. Um, were you telling me or yeah. was my coworker at work telling me like the full film only exists. That, on I film. was telling you, uh, okay. I mean, there may, I've heard strong rumors by people who would know that Criterion's going to put out the film sometime soon. So I imagine a DCP will be forthcoming that has, I guess it's a music rights thing. Um, so either the music restored or possibly whole scenes, they just cut out because the music rights. Yeah. But the yeah. only reason it was ever digitized in any way was for home video. Right. right? And they're, yeah, to, there are small scenes missing or parts of scenes missing from the home video release because of music rights. Right. And so the f- film is the only way to see the whole movie. Um, and man, you guys have both seen it? I've no. seen it two no. times. Oh, you haven't seen it? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's so terrific. It's extraordinary. It's so much fun. It's and maybe it's my also, favorite Robert Altman movie. I didn't realize what two years ago or whatever when I saw Mississippi oh, yeah. Grind the Mississippi Grind is essentially like a blatant rip off <laughs> remake of California Split except the Mississippi River instead of Los Angeles and Reno um, uh, so you say it's your favorite Robert Altman film I think so do you like more than MASH yes do you like more than Nashville <laughs> yes do you like more than McCabe and Mrs. Miller that one I'm not so sure about but I think so what about uh, Gosford Park I've never seen Gosford Park actually I like it better than all of these Hmm. Definitely. I mean, more I than three women. Three women is probably still my favorite right. because I got to hold on to my like pretentious art snob <laughs> bona fides and pick the artiest Robert. Altman I mean, it's pretty great. Favorite. Yeah, it is. It's fantastic. Um, but yeah, I think three women is still my, my favorite, but this is definitely up there. Um, although not that it's a contender for favorite, but, uh, the company, like people sleep on that movie. The company's a good movie. Uh, yeah. I, I actually, I actually uh, did not get a chance to see it, but I'd heard great things. Um, and I saw when we were living in Chicago, it's a, it's a very Chicago movie. There's bars I recognize, um, in the movie anyway. And you uh, were part of that uh, ballet company for a few years. That's right. Yeah. Um, you don't talk about that nearly (laughs) enough on the show. I also, I also, we're getting away from California split, but another reason I like the company is I'm an unabashed Nev Campbell fan. And I Mm. always feel like she has never gotten quite the, uh, credit or the roles that she deserves 
Um, she was in that James Toback movie. Oh God, how awkward was it that you boy, and I, oh boy. <laughs> you and I uh, was it on a movie journal? Was on the I mean, it was I think on the it was a movie journal. Thank uh, God, movie journal. We talked at length about James Toback <laughs> right before. <laughs> yeah, these the things day before. So, yes. Yeah, we we didn't know. I'm sorry. Um, uh, which, I mean, I still think Seduced and Abandoned is an interesting movie. <laughs> But uh, well, that's uh, yeah. I mean, anyway. and it probably and it still is. I'm sure I haven't seen it. Anyway, um, it does make me question my uh, my uh, enjoyment of the Tyson film <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, okay, so back to California Split. It's basically um, Elliot Gould and George Segal are just these two gamblers who uh, hang out together, and Elliot Gould never stops talking. <laughs> um, uh, and it, the movie, it just uh, it, it just moves along. I guess there's so many, there's so much Robert Altman that can sometimes feel, I think, mesmerizingly kind of meandering. You know, in the way that he mm-hmm. uses, right. and that's the the overlooking dialogue and the way the camera moves around. Like I think that's kind of there. There is kind of a hangout feel to a lot of his movies, especially his ensemble movies. This is not really an ensemble movie. It's kind of a two hander. And then there's the other two women that Elliot Gould lives with who are uh, prostitutes. Um, uh, but this one, it moves along at such a great, great speed and has so many jokes in it. Like, I don't think of, I mean, Long Goodbye has funny stuff, but I don't think of Robert Altman as a comedic filmmaker, I guess. Yeah. Mm. I mean, there's a lot of funny stuff in all his movies, but uh, yeah, not yeah. so much as California Split. I mean, yeah, it, it feels like a comedy. Yeah. More so than MASH. Which is not a film I like that much. Yeah, I don't like MASH very, That's the problem. Is much. MASH feels more like a comedy, but California Split's way funnier. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, uh, in fact, it had, there's, a, there's an Elliot Gould thing in there that, my, again, I spent uh, a lot of... I saw most of the stuff I saw at the festival I saw with my wife, um, really with the exception of like two movies. Um, and there was a thing that cracked us up that we've been like doing ever since, which is there's a part where Elliot Gould disappears for a oh, while. I know exactly. I, this was <laughs> yeah. my guess. He shows back up. It turns out he went down to Tijuana <laughs> to bet on dog racing and he comes back. He's got a big sombrero on and he's holding, he's standing outside of George Siegel's window, holding a pinata shaped like a parrot and he waves. And then he does this thing where he reaches over and acts like the pinata bit him or the, the parrot like bit him. And he's like, Ooh, my, my finger. And my, my wife and I have been doing that. Like, oh, that's even the beat. I think, I thought you were going to mention when he's like, I'll give you three guesses where I've been. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Sounds pretty good. I gotta say. Yeah. Yeah. It's full of stuff. Uh, I I don't want to go too much into it. It did give me the itch as a guy who is a gambler. I don't don't know. I think I have a problem like these characters probably do, but uh, it did make me want to go play, you know, blackjack and craps oh yeah i'm not a gambler but the last time i saw it i walked outside and I was with some friends like so we're going gambling right now right <laughs> yeah because it is it has that energy that you mentioned but it's languidly paced as robert allman films tend to be and i think it's disarming how much energy is built up by the end of the film yeah. and as i told you before you saw the movie it was like by the end of the movie it's so good you want to punch the screen yeah. and a lot of that is just because there's so much energy you have built up you're like i gotta go seize the world yeah but no, at the very end what I, the only part if there's any part of the movie i didn't like uh, it's the, literally the very end when the credits roll because it ends, I think Elliot Gould, like there's an empty room in the casino right? where they're counting all the, you know, whatever. And, um, there's like one of those wheels like that you can bet on what is, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I don't know what you call like a wheel of fortune. You're the gambler, sure. man. Yeah. But I don't play this. And he's just sort of 
absentmindedly as he leaves the room, like spins it. Mm-hmm. And so it's spinning. And then the credits are on the right side of the screen going up while the thing is spinning in a circle. It was so disorienting. <laughs> like, it feel like I can't stand up from my chair right now because I feel like I'm like listening to starboard here. Um, nice. anyway, um, yeah, it was, it was a blast. Uh, yeah. I don't have anything else to say about it except right Jeff Goldblum's in one. He literally has like, that's right. Two, two lines. About that. And they're very funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, he plays George Siegel's boss that George Siegel doesn't listen to. <laughs> so anyway, um, are you next Scott? Well, you put this on the list, even though we both saw it oh, like just, just 11 mention, months ago. <laughs> yeah. Just to mention, call me by your name. Uh, still one of the best movies of the year. If you ask me, um, yeah, I want to see it again. So I have nothing new to say about it, but yeah, it was the, it was the opening night. Yeah. Film? Yeah. Um, okay. So now you're up again. All right. Uh, I got two Hong Sang Soo movies in a row. Two of the three he released this year. Uh, David, you've already talked about on the beach at night alone earlier this year from LA film fest, which I still think is the best of these three. Um, and one of his oh, best good. films in general. Oh, good. Um, it's my, I mean, I've only seen two of them and it's my favorite of the two. Um, there you go. Wait, you saw yourself and yours. That was and, not this year. That was last year. No, I'm saying I've seen two Hong Sang Soo oh, films period. in total. Okay. <laughs> Um, like you or, or like me with Claire Denis. Um, uh, but just for the listener on the beach night alone is actually out. In, yes. Uh, some markets at least. It'll have two play dates in LA this week. Uh, as of the time this goes up, it'll be on Tuesday and Friday, I think at the downtown independent. Awesome. Um, Claire's camera and the day after will be coming out next year in some capacity. I hope it's uh, a little bit more long-term in LA. Hopefully his audience will pick up. Uh, Claire's camera is him reuniting with Isabel Huppert. They work together on in another country which is the first hong sang Soo movie i saw and i absolutely loved um this one's a little lighter i think it's uh it's only 69 minutes nice i know um and it kind of feels like even then they're reaching for ways to fill the time i mean he works very improvisationally is the wrong word because he does write scripts but he writes them like the morning they shoot uh so it's very much uh fly by the seat of your pants and this one they shot kind of while he and who and some others were just at the Cannes film festival so they just filled time bopping around can eating in restaurants and making a movie which is a cool way to make a movie um but it does kind of have that the lightness that that uh premise suggests she plays a teacher who is having her first time in Cannes and is just kind of seeing the country and just kind of falls in with this Korean artsy crowd. Uh, Kim Min He, I'm saying that right, yeah. Kim Min He plays uh, an assistant to a film salesperson who, I mean, for those who don't know the Cannes marketplace, and I don't know it terribly well, but the sales part is just as big, if not bigger, than the actual festival itself. Well, you, if um, you want to learn more about it, you could check out this James Toback <laughs> documentary. So I heard. <laughs> um but she plays an assistant who's just recently been fired because a high profile Korean director who I'm sure is some kind of uh, stand in for Hong Sing Soo himself, uh, has recently slept with her and is creating an awkward environment around the office. Uh, and so a lot of it is Kim Min Hee and Isabel Bukhupera just bopping around can, uh, getting to know each other, getting to know about a little bit about their cultures and just finding ways to fill time while they're both not really there for a purpose. Um, and if you like Isabel Hooper and Kim Min Hee, as I do, there's a lot to like them in the movie. Um, for those who aren't as familiar with them, I can see why it was kind of trying on some of the audience, even like I said, at 69 minutes kind of goes in and out of, uh, its central purpose. But I think it's a, it's a very sweet movie and, uh, moving enough in parts. Uh, maybe not the best introduction for Hong, but for already fans, it's a good, good way in. Uh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to point out that, um, Hong Sing Soo may have two films today, if I first, but Isabel Huppert has yeah. three, and you saw all three of them. I know. She's uh, 
one of the more prolific actors these days, which is nice because she's great. Yeah. Um, the Day After, I think, is a better all-around film. Uh, I think it's a little bit more accessible and a little bit more uh, centrally driven. It's his first black-and-white movie since... Oh, what was the name of that movie? The Day He Arrives, um, which came out in 2011. And this one uh, is kind of... A, it's about... Kim mean he stars again. She plays a young woman who's starting to work under like an English professor or something. I Some of the plot details are kind of lost to me at this point after a week of... <laughs> two or three movies a day, but um, she's kind of taking up an uh, internship of sorts with this English professor who's recently fired his, or his last intern quit after they had a relationship. Hong sang has a tendency to make movies about uh, men in authority positions taking inappropriate advances on their uh, younger female assistants, um, which I understand is a large part of his own life. Um, but I think his film's accurately reflect the emotional fallout of those kind of decisions for both the women involved and for himself. And he seems perpetually unhappy with those decisions. If the movies are anything to go by. And this is a really smart, uh, very funny look at exactly that situation and the ways people make excuses for their actions and then kind of take revenge out on all the wrong people. Um, and yeah, it's as with all Hong Kong movies, quite short. It's like 85, 89 minutes. Um, and it's uh, yeah, it's quite good. I hope people see it when it comes out next year. Uh, the next movie I got, Still on <laughs> I know, is uh, Gemini, the new film by Aaron Katz, who's that's a director, friend of the show, Aaron Katz. That's right. You guys had him on what, like episode six or something? <laughs> it was very early. Yeah. <laughs> He's in the forties, I think. Okay. Um, who I, I mean, I'm a big Aaron Katz fan, actually. Uh, Quiet City was one. Dance Party USA kind of came out for me at the same time because I didn't get to see them until they were on DVD. Um, but I remember just being quite taken with his approach and it was definitely in that mumblecore era where everything was getting labeled as kind of, I don't know, easy or too improvisational or too throwaway. Um, but I really liked his approach to those films. I thought dance party USA was surprisingly, I don't know, gritty, I guess the right word. Usually there's kind of a sweetness to mumblecore that I think people found dismissible, but, uh, dance party USA in particular is kind of a tough sit at times. Uh, and then, Quiet City was a sweeter affair, but I still think quite good. I really loved his last film, uh, Land Ho, which is about two old men uh, journeying to New Zealand, or I think it was New Zealand, somewhere like no, that. It's Iceland. Iceland, yeah. And I didn't like this movie. Really? You didn't? I was a big fan of Cold Weather, the one you skipped over. Oh, that's right. I forgot there, about Cold Weather, too. Cold Weather's, I feel like Cold Weather was him like showing, I'm not Mumblecore, see, I made a genre movie. But in like but the most Mumblecore kind yeah, of way. <laughs> yeah. Because um, Cold Weather is kind of a detective noir, but if the detective was like a Mumblecore yeah. um, uh, kid. Um, but yeah, I didn't like Lanto. Well, we can talk about this some other time. Oh. <laughs> but Cold Weather is a good jumping off point because this is also kind of a neo-noir, but I think uh, more consciously so, which I don't think serves it terribly well. There's a lot of people kind of commenting on the noir tropes, the mystery plots falling into, um, which is sometimes amusing. Uh, Nelson Franklin, who I think is a very funny sitcom actor, shows up for a brief role to kind of play that exact part to kind of comment on the trajectory of the story. And he, his delivery of lines and just approach to characters in general, I think makes it work. The rest of the film, I think as with cold weather, kind of the mystery plotting is too light to really make it stick. It just kind of superficial and serviceable and kind of gets you there. I think it's strongest at the beginning when it's just about, um, this woman played by, why am I forgetting her name? 
uh, Lola Kirk, who is an assistant to a uh, famous actress played by Zoe Kravitz. And when it's just them, the two of them hanging out, it's a blast. But then before long, Zoe Kravitz winds up dead and Lola Kirk has to figure out the whole mystery behind it. Um, and so you're robbed of what was up to then the central appeal. And I don't know that Lola Kirk is charming as she is. I don't know that's enough to carry it. And like I said, the mystery plotting is just serviceable enough to get her from point to point to solve the, I mean, not predictable, kind of, but kind of inevitable conclusion of it all. Um, it's stylish. It's fun enough to watch, but I don't think it's any great shakes, unfortunately. Hmm. Um, you tweeted something about this movie that caught my eye that I meant to ask you about. No, I can't remember. Something about Lola Kirk. Oh, well. All right. <laughs> but I'm a fan of her. Yeah, no, she's great. Better Mistress America, but sure. what isn't? Uh, so I still got another one on the list yeah, here. Keep uh, going. Hannah, which uh, was the first film I saw at AFI Fest, uh, was the only one shown unmasked, which was a real drag, I gotta say. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it certainly wasn't doing the film any favors because I don't think it's that good of a film. It stars Charlotte Rampling as a woman who's kind of a part-time actress, part-time nanny, uh, who early in the film carts her husband off to jail for what we kind of deduce to be perhaps some kind of child pornography charges. Um she's sort of cut off from her family. Uh, there's people berating her for what her husband did and how can she stand by him as a mother. And eventually she finds some photographs and that's kind of all we have to go on for why her husband's in jail. And there's a lot in this film that's kept, you could say purposefully opaque, but I don't really know to what end. I don't know that it helps draw us into the character. I don't know. It helps draw us into the world. I think it's just kind of there because they couldn't figure out another way to fill out the time. And this is amplified by the shooting scheme, which often, puts Charlotte Rampling at a disadvantage. It kind of cuts her face out of the frame. It's all these kind of clever framing tricks that work when you have a more fully fleshed out movie, but just come off as kind of tricks to fill the time, uh, if not. And as good as Charlotte Rampling is at filling any amount of space, you know, there's only so much she can do, especially when the movie takes the inevitable turn towards the theatrical piece she's working on intersecting with her life. And can you tell when she's acting or when she's really living her life? And it's like, it, it gets exceedingly tiring. Uh, so that was probably my least favorite film I saw at the festival. I like this guy a lot, by the way, <laughs> this character that you're playing. Okay, well now we can move on to one that we both saw yeah. last night, um, which I was very excited about, as were a lot of people. It was a big turnout. Act. Um, and that's the new Michael Hanukkah movie. Do you say Michael? I think it's Mikkel. I think it is Mikkel. I've always said Michael, but okay. I think I'm sure it is uh, based on what I know of the German. <laughs> right. Or is he German or is he Austrian? Oh, who can tell? I thought yeah. he was Austrian. Yeah, maybe he's Austrian. Probably the same pronunciation of, yeah. of, of Mikkel, uh, Mikkel Hanukkah. Um, anyway, the new movie is called Happy End. It's another uh, Isabel Huppert vehicle. Yep. <laughs> um, uh uh, although it's it's definitely more of an ensemble, yeah, um, for sure. I'm not sure if there is a lead at all. Um, maybe the little girl is the closest. I think we kind of see the world through her eyes. I mean, um, like literally, it really sets us in that mode. Open, yeah, because it opens with her kind of home movies through her iPhone of her mother going about her business and her killing her pet hamster. Yeah, and potentially maybe her mother as well, right? Oh, I missed that plot point. Well, I mean. We know that from the pet hamster and from what she right. says later to her grandfather or was it to her father, whatever, that she has been known to take other people's pills and use them like to poison other people with them. Yeah. Right. And I, there's a part when her mom is falling asleep in that early thing. Right. The caption, the thing that she's typing is like, 
it something about how it's so easy to get her to shut up or whatever. Oh, okay. I think the implication being that she may have given her some pills the way that she did the hamster, and then the mom falls into a coma and dies. I feel like to me, I took away that the girl was at least partially responsible no, for that her mom's death. Totally tracks. I just missed that implication, especially in the text. Um. Uh. Anyway. Um. And so. Uh, she, this girl after her mom is in a coma goes to live with her dad. The, her parents are divorced and her dad lives with his entire extended family right. on a massive estate in Calais. Um, and Isabel Huppert is her aunt and Jean-Louis Trintignant is her grandfather. Um, which means yes, Jean-Louis Trintignant and Isabel Huppert play father and daughter, much like they did in Amour. And there's, that's another, not the only connection. <laughs> there's another reference to Ms. May. I've seen people like describe the movie as a sort of sequel to a more, but I don't think it is. No, I don't think they're supposed to be the same characters because nothing oh, not about at all. the way they act reminds me. There's just some history that is very similar to the yeah. history. The same characters had in a more. So that is my feeling on that, that it's not supposed to be the same, same people. Um, plus I don't remember their name in a more. It's probably totally well, they different. also just live in an apartment. <laughs> like, Right, yeah, they don't live in a fucking mansion. Yeah, um, and, and so yeah, the um, the movie, uh, and I'll get to Scott's thoughts. I think I liked it more than you, Scott. Um, but like a lot of the AFI stuff, it just it was like that was not bad, um, and it was weirdly like kind of fun, even though like most Michael Hanukkah stuff it, um, has a lot of people being mean to each other and uh, has some dark themes. But I kind of feel like there's a part of me that feels like Michael Hanukkah has at least compared to his younger self, gone a little bit soft in his older age. Like his stuff is still kind of like a more can be very uncompromising at times, but like I do kind of miss him just like setting out to punish the audience. I kind of miss that stuff with like with, um, funny games of course is the most uh, obvious. Do you example, feel like you but, deserve to be punished, David? Uh, sure. Yeah. Right. Um, we all do. Um, Scott, and, your thoughts. I don't feel like I deserve to be punished. I feel like David deserves to be punished. Yeah, yeah no, we're not me. We're uh, agreeing a lot. Today. Okay. And so, but happy end, happy end is for one thing I would say, I think it's beautifully shot by Christian Berger, who has worked with, um, Michael Hanukkah a lot. Um, uh, most notably for me, I would say on the piano teacher. Um, he also, I think shot white ribbon, but I never saw that one. Mm. Oh man, that's a good movie. But that's, you were saying you, you know, like you were, I feel like your experience with Michael Hanukkah starts about the time mine ends. <laughs> like I've only seen, I've seen a more and, um, and, and this one, but before that, the last one I had seen, I think was probably code unknown. Mm-hmm. So I haven't seen cache. I haven't seen time of the wolf or hour of the wolf. What's it called? Time of the wolf. Time of the wolf. Hour of the wolf is another movie, right? Yeah. That's the thing. Our room. Oh, right. Yeah. That's my thing. <laughs> Brotherhood uh, of the wolf. I haven't seen, <laughs> I know I've seen that. You yeah, know, I, do that. I haven't seen cache. I feel like there's another one in there that I'm missing. Um, but happy end kind of, it has the code unknown type of feel of being mostly like, a bunch of unrelated scenes that sort of come together to tell right. the story, not unrelated, but you know, it doesn't seem to have, it doesn't have a through narrative, right? It, it does, but it yeah, doesn't unfold the way you expect a narrative. To I, I think it kind of takes a similar narrative tack that twin peaks. The return did is it shows you a bunch of unrelated scenes and slowly you kind of figure out how it's all interconnected. Yeah. I think that's, that's a, that's a good point. Um, but I did like, I, I think the movie, the, the the and the name happy end is i feel like the movie is sort of setting out to in a way separate 
death from dying, if you know what I mean. Okay. Like, I think the movie generally sees death, like being dead as a kind of release. Okay. But it also explores a bunch of different ways. There's, there's a bunch of people who die or almost die in the movie. Right. And I think the movie is intentionally like sort of exploring like, death is one thing you can get to it through a bunch of different ways. Some of them are your choice. Some of them are someone else's choice. Some of them are accidents or whatever. Um, but it all ends up at a kind of happy end as it were, even if the methodology of getting there is through, uh, malice or incompetence or, or personal violence or whatever. That's an interesting read that I hadn't really considered. Uh, I don't, I don't know that's enough to get me there, though. I mean, I really liked the little girl. I thought that was one of the rare kind of performances by a girl that age. She's 13 in the movie. She's probably 12 or 13 in real life. Um, yeah, she's, I would say, small for 13. She's like, right. I was surprised when she said she was 13. Yeah, she so she could very well, younger. the actress yeah. could very well be younger. But usually, I mean, that's like, it's an awkward age to begin with. And so when you put a kid on screen that that's, the, that's right. that age, you can see why they'd be so awkward. Hey, tell her just run snacks. Uh, yeah, I haven't eaten today, so oh, I'm, damn. Yeah, I'm having some honey roasted peanuts. Yeah, this is the time to dip it. You yeah, got I know. Thing, I know. <laughs> um, and I, anyway, so her performance was great. I thought carried any emotional weight the film had, but I don't know, to me it was too much like, look at these rich assholes, let's laugh at them and punish the audience in the meantime kind of stuff. Uh, I mean, I, I did really like the last shot. I thought that was kind of mm-hmm. the best crystallization of that purpose. Yeah. But a uh, long road to get there. Uh, I, I, but I thought it was an enjoyable road, but I do think it is, it will ultimately be seen, I think, as a minor work yes, from, from for Monica. sure. Um, I feel like there was one more thing I was going to say about, oh yeah, Matthew uh, Kasovitz is in it. Uh, he's her father. Um, yeah. I just, I like, I, I sort of felt old cause I remember like movies, like he's in like Lahane, right? I okay. Think. I haven't seen it. So I remember like when Matthew Kasovitz was like hmm. the like young, cool, kind of like <laughs> odd looking, but like good looking, like cool right. young guy. And now he's the middle-aged you know, dad, boring middle-aged dad who's cheating on his wife. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's Luke Perry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, all right. And then another one that we both saw, um, do you want to start this time since I started on the last one? Uh, sure. I, I mean, and you saw it more recently than I, so you might have to pick up some plot threads. Okay. Uh, is in the fade, uh, directed by, do you recall? Fatih Akin. That's the one. The guy who made uh, head on, I think is probably his best known film. I think I've seen zero of his other films. So, um, uh, you yeah head on is probably his best known and then there was also one that's a very sweet movie called uh in july or im Yuli, mm. um starring moritz bleibtro i think um anyway i can't remember uh this one stars dan kruger in i think her first german language role which is weird right yeah she's german yeah she's from germany yeah speaks the language fluently and this I is mean, the first time she has played a german language role. i mean she played a german in english bastards, bastards but, yeah. but that wasn't it, i guess in a german film would be the better way to yeah. put it um anyway uh so she stars in the film uh she's kind of i think yeah we're introduced to her, her via a wedding video that's set several years prior to the rest of the film where she's getting married to i guess like a gangster of some kind right but it's in prison Yes, that's she, right. She's yeah. She's it's her wedding video while he's an inmate. Right, and then we cut for it doesn't have like a, a, a text on screen yeah. saying, but it's, I'm guessing it's about ten years based on 
How old do you think that boy is? That's what I'm trying to remember. <laughs> he might have been even younger, actually. He might he, only have been like six or seven. Well, yeah, that's what I was. That was going to be my gut, but you saw more recently, and he's not in the film very long because uh, we find that you know they're trying to put their lives back together. We get the sense that he's probably still involved in some criminal activity, but is keeping that low enough that he can kind of stra- stay on the straight and narrow. Uh, but early on, uh, he and their son are killed uh, rather violently um, by what she immediately identifies as a hate crime. Uh, and what the authorities uh, later surmise to be as well. Um, and so the film kind of tracks her grief at first, and then... I don't think it's quite as immediate as you remember. I mean, I'm okay. not saying she has... I mean, I'm not saying when she picks up the phone the first time or whatever, but, like, I right. feel like as soon as she starts to have, like, a conception of what happened, yes. that's where she goes. Yes, but there's... I'm saying there are scenes, like, the, that first night, she's not really thinking anything. That's what, yeah. yeah. So once she starts thinking about how did this happen, yeah. That's we, the, did we say, yeah, her husband is Turkish. Okay. Did we say yeah. that? I can't remember I don't think that. we did. Uh, yeah. Um, anyway. Uh, so, yeah, then, then the film kind of tracks her grief and then eventual quest for justice, first legal and then extra legal. Uh, and, I mean, I... I don't think it's quite as like a lot of revenge films. I don't think it's quite as thoughtful as it makes out to be, but it's a hell of a ride. Yeah. I would say that's, that's, um, a very accurate, uh, assessment. Um, although I would say I, I less of a problem for me than it might be for you. Um, it's not necessarily a problem. It's just like, I, I think when something plays at a film festival under the auspices of the world cinema, uh, designation, I think there's kind of, uh, subconscious, suggestion of gravity okay um so i I just think it's worth getting out in front of (laughs) that it's not you know a hugely developed rich film but it's really really good it's really really well made and it's very much a um driven by its plot i would say Uh, like because you know it's it's an investigation and then a courtroom drama and a lot of those are based on you know putting a before b then c you know following uh following steps and and um, new information getting revealed. And so it is, it's a plot driven movie um, with, I think a good performance at its center, but maybe not so much a character driven movie. Is that maybe that's what you're, is it yeah, I mean, not a lot of interior for her? Yeah. I, I didn't really mean to identify this as a fault necessarily. Okay. <laughs> Just uh, saying that that's what it is. It um, sounds very, uh, and I don't say this in a negative way. It sounds very nineties uh, thriller um, in some way. Oh, Just, just based on the story. And the dynamic, it sounds very much like that. Like eye for an eye or something like that. Yeah, but I would say, I mean, uh, I, I think... But probably better. How could it not be? <laughs> I think the way that Scott laid out the plot maybe uh, gave the wrong impression. It is like the courtroom part is a huge... In terms of... Oh, I mean, I think each of the three parts... Time, yeah, I think each of the part, three parts I laid out have about equal weight runtime-wise. Did you think so? I felt like... To me, it felt like the courtroom stuff was... I think you're just bored by legality, David. No, I wasn't. No, I was into <laughs> no, it. I, I was like riveted by it. Um... I don't know, to me, they felt like about equal sections, but maybe I'm misreading. Yeah. Um, and maybe I was just uh, entranced by, uh, I just like seeing other judicial systems. Right. Seeing like the way that I like, okay, I recognize that in many ways, this is very similar to the way a trial would go here, but in many other ways, it's not. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Do they have wigs? <laughs> no, they don't have wigs. <laughs> Summer. Uh, yeah. But, um, yeah, so I guess it's, it is, yeah, I, I wrote this in my notes. I haven't written my review yet um but it's it is a revenge thriller but a huge section of the movie to me the courtroom stuff 
kind of sets aside at least what you expect from a revenge thriller because she becomes essentially passive. Yeah, the, the much entire, to her frustration, which I think yes. is a lot of the tension that drives through that is how long she can stand to just sit there. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really well made. And I will say, uh, you know, no spoilers, but I think there are people, probably there already are, I haven't read a lot of reviews, but I think there will be people who will hate the way this movie ends. Um, yeah, probably. Uh, and maybe even be offended by the way this movie oh, interesting. Uh, this movie ends. Um uh yeah well see, yeah, I, I want to talk more about it but there's no way i can yeah, we can uh, talk about it later yeah uh, yeah uh all right so what's next uh am i off the hook no no nope, i'm you very are. much on the hook couldn't be more uh well if, okay hannah was your least favorite my least favorite movie of the festival um and one of my least favorites of 2017 so far is a movie called <laughs> jim and andy the great beyond featuring a very special contractually obligated mention of tony clifton and basically, the premise here is that um, it's a documentary, uh, and uh, it's a documentary about the making of Man on the Moon, the Milos Forman movie from 1999, uh, specifically about Jim Carrey's performance. And the the impetus of it here is that Jim Carrey was method the entire shoot. He was Andy Kaufman or Tony Clifton, um, and uh, he and it, the so the real Bob Zemuda played by Paul Giamatti in the film, the real Bob Zamuda and the real Lynn Margulies played by Courtney Love in the film shot a bunch of like hung out and shot a bunch of footage of Jim Carrey on set. Um, that was, I think intended as a DVD extra. And as the story goes, uh, universal or whoever universal pictures. Yeah. Um, was like, uh, we were not putting this out. This is like, this makes Jim Carrey look like an abrasive dick. <laughs> like the, the, this is too, uh, we, this isn't fun stuff. Uh, and so now all that footage is, uh, in, or most of that footage is in the movie and Chris Smith, director of American movie has directed it along with clips from both Andy Kaufman's and Jim, Jim Carrey's career and a new interview <laughs> with Jim Carrey that holds it all together. Jim Carrey is the only person interviewed in the movie. Um, there are no interviews with Paul Giamatti or Courtney Love or Milos Forman or anyone else reflecting on this experience. This is specifically about Jim Carrey. And I think that could be interesting, except I feel like Chris Smith is way too willing to go along and agree with what Jim Carrey says. So Jim is Jim Carrey now being sort of like a, you know, bullshit philosopher about identity and acting and stuff like that and encouraging us to see his basically shitty obnoxious behavior through the lens of uh, his art and i feel like it really just annoyed me that the movie didn't want to question that didn't want to puncture that at all the closest it comes is um so jerry lawler played himself in man on the moon the the wrestler uh and um jim carrey as andy tormented jerry jerry lawler relentlessly behind the scenes and there is one part from the footage of the time of Jerry Lawler saying, Andy wasn't like this. Like we did the bits together and he was in character then, but backstage at the Letterman show or whatever, he was really nice and caring and professional and wanted to make sure we did everything right. Yeah. And so to me, that's the only hint we get that Jim Carrey is full of shit, um, yeah. except for all of the footage. But the movie doesn't seem to agree. Well, such is the nature of method acting. <laughs> um, it's, like, if, I mean, if somebody, if they get a good performance, then great. But at the same time, it's just like that, like that, because I, I read your review mm-hmm. 
And I thought that moment sounds so fascinating because it ultimately was like, yeah, you can be method all you want. You've completely misjudged the person that you're being all the time. Right. And yet now, even in 2017, Jim Carrey is saying like, Andy would do this. Andy wouldn't do this. Like, you don't know. Nobody nobody knows. Yeah. (laughs) Or maybe ask Lynn Margulies or Bob Zamuda, the people who actually, actually knew him. Um, and it gets, there's other stuff that is even more uncomfortable for me to talk about. There's footage of Jim Carrey as Andy talking to Andy's actual family, like siblings and, and father. That sounds pretty rough. And I, and, and we're only able to, the movie only gives us the interpretation that modern day Jim Carrey gives it about it being something therapeutic for them or whatever. Um, and like, I want to be like, maybe, but why I would like to, get an interview with them. I would like to know how they felt about yeah. it. Um, I will say there's one part that's really fascinating in which, um, Andy, I guess Jim Carrey as Andy is getting his makeup done. And, um, the actor, Oh, what is his name? Who played, Jim, who played Andy's father, Larry Berger. Is it something like that? Um, Oh, I know who you're talking about. Yeah. I think it's Gary, Gary. That sounds right. They, he is in, I don't think he was method the entire time or whatever, but in the makeup trailer, he is in character and they have like a big father son blowout in the makeup, uh, trailer. And then it's like, uh, the dad like storms out and then the, the camera moves over and the makeup lady is crying and she's like so much like me and my dad. <laughs> it's like, mm. that's the one moment that, that was actually really interesting, uh, to me about what, you know, method acting can do besides inconvenience everyone. <laughs> um, but no, uh, you never hear stuff like, Oh, Jimmy Stewart was method on Harvey. Like you never hear like, Oh, th- someone playing a nice character right, has decided yeah. to be method. It's always like absolute monsters. Yeah. Yeah. It, it has become a, a problem. And also, um, I'm not the first person to say this. In fact, someone, uh, just uh, a listener just tweeted it to me today. Who are, the female actors, like famous female actors who do this. Like why? Like all the stories we hear are about Dustin Hoffman, Daniel Day Lewis, Jared Leto, right. Christian Bale, De Niro uh, a little bit, I think a little bit. Yeah. And now and Jim Carrey, like who are the lady method actors? I don't know of any. Yeah. I'm sure there are some, I'm sure I, there are, but maybe they don't act like, like maybe they don't torment everyone while they're doing it. Yeah. So it doesn't become a story anyway. Uh, what's next? I was just going to quickly mention uh, method actor playing a nice guy, uh, Daniel Day Lewis as Lincoln. Oh, oh okay, okay, fair enough. Well, yeah. we have our different, uh, you know, different theories about Lincoln. I think uh, <laughs> in you know, the context of the film, he's a nice. I'm just guy. saying, you know, maybe respect states' rights. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, definitely obliterated anyone's memory of us praising James Toback with, with that. <laughs> That was a joke, by the way. I know that I am conservative, and that's a thing that conservatives stand for, but uh, come on. Okay. uh, Yeah, I'm not going to. Anyway. (laughs) How do you... Okay. Okay. (laughs) When when Jeff Sessions says things like he intends to enforce federal drug laws, even in states that have legalized uh, things like marijuana... How do you reconcile that, reconcile that with the conservative position? I don't. Um, okay. <laughs> Thumbs down. <laughs> so, so, okay. So Jeff Sessions is just a... There's nothing remarkably conservative about this administration. Okay. Um, it's very frustrating. All right. Uh, I'm glad we got that out of the way. Um, from my least favorite to... Uh, maybe Scott's favorite. Well, no. We've already covered my favorite. Uh, oh, which was... Uh, Bright Sunshine Inn. Uh, Bright Sunshine This is probably number 
two or three. Okay. Uh, it's called Madame Hyde, or Madame, rather, because the French. Uh, it stars Isabeau Huppert in her third and final appearance on this podcast. Um, and at <laughs> on AFI this Fest. episode of the podcast. Do you know something? That's true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know so much. Uh she once again actually plays a teacher. Um, this time she's a physics, physics professor. I guess professor is the wrong word. She's a high school teacher. In the, this is another thing, like with court systems, figuring out school systems in other countries can sometimes uh-huh. be a challenge because it seems like she's a teacher at a technical portion of a high school, um, which I don't know if that's really a thing here. Okay. That, there's like a school, regular school, and then as a subset of that, there's a technical school. Yeah, I don't know if that's a right? thing either. I don't think that happens. Not that um, I'm aware. But uh, she's basically, she's mostly teaching kids who aren't dedicated, aren't smart, uh, however you want to put it, enough for the main section of the school. And they're mostly going into trade professions. And they're not terribly motivated to sit around and learn physics. So she's struggling to wrangle the class together. Uh, in the meantime, she has a little trailer where she can conduct experiments to kind of keep herself going uh one night while conducting such an experiment she gets struck by lightning and starts randomly transforming into some kind of glowing creature that wreaks havoc on this french town wow um and it's a blast it actually reminded me a lot of the love witch in that kind of okay similar kind of tone of being a little heightened a little ironic but still taking i guess the stakes of the story seriously enough to uh not be ignorant of the fact that his main character is going around killing people. Um, and because it's Isabel Hooper leading this, uh, it's a lot of fun and really entertaining and really engaging and very funny. Uh, it's beautifully shot too. I think it was shot and my, I don't know this for a fact, but just looking at it, I guess like 16 millimeter is kind of oversaturated in that way. Um, and Isabel Hooper's character is just really dynamic at times. She's really getting through to some of the students and really passionate about her job. And, then we'll just transform into this creature and light one of them on fire. (laughs) Uh, and so, yeah, it's, uh, it's a varied, I I don't want to say much more than that without giving too much away, but it's, uh, a really interesting film. The director came out to introduce it before I wasn't able to stick around for the Q and a, but he introduced it by a saying that he loves to come to Los Angeles and buy old records, which props that. And then saying he remembered a quote by uh, Samuel Fuller who said that, uh, all great films are about education. He's like, well, I don't know that that's true, but my film's about education. So I want it to be true. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I don't really know what else to say about it because I already feel like I've enticed people just the right way. And I don't yeah. like to give too much of a critical read on film that most people haven't been able to see. It doesn't have distribution yet, but I hope it will someday. And I think it'd be a really easy film for the right distributor to sell. Yeah. Stop drilling. You've hit oil. Um, <laughs> right on. Do you stay for Q and A's usually? I try to, I, I like to, but it's like usually my schedule's too packed. Yeah. I, uh, no, I, as a rule, I generally don't. I see. Um, I, I somewhat enjoy the awkward audience questions and seeing how <laughs> people will handle them. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, uh, I considered staying for the April's Daughter Q&A with Michelle Franco, but I'm actually glad I didn't because the traffic was so bad on Hollywood Boulevard that I barely made it uh, to California Split. Oh, wow. Was, that, was in one of, that was at a different, it was at right. AFI, at AFI. That's uh, so why we had to take a lift over there. And I thought like, oh, we've got like an hour and 15 minutes. And it took us almost an hour to get. Should have taken the subway. Uh, uh, but then, I mean, to where? Then I'd have to. I think somebody said that if you got off at Vermont, it's like just a half mile walk up the hill. I feel like it's a longer walk. Okay. That's what um, they were saying. I don't know what yeah. they were talking about. But I mean, I have walked from the Greek to the Sunset Vermont, uh, well, there you which go. is even, even longer. 
Um, but, uh, you know, the time crunch anyway. Uh, okay. Next I, oh, on here, I put Mudbound, which is the one that you, another one you and I saw 10 yeah. months ago. That one I have seen more recently. I liked it more the second time. That's a good, uh, maybe I should watch it again because I've, I still think it's like great. I'm definitely recommending people see it, but as opposed to call me by your name, which has hung out in the top five yeah. on my list so far, um, from, from Sundance to now, uh, Mudbound keeps getting knocked down like a you know a notch at a time as i see new movies so maybe i need to watch it again too i mean it was never even in the early time of sundance it was never a serious top 10 contender for me okay um so what do we think about that script (laughs) is it a good script i don't think it's gonna get any awards damn it (laughs) all right um then back to you then i guess oh uh yes my second least favorite film of the festival uh less uh overtly uh, obtrusive than uh, Hannah, but it's kind of a shrug. Uh, it's called, called On Body and Soul. It has a great premise. It's these two people who work in a slaughterhouse who find out they ha- are having the same dream. Uh, wow. The main problem with this is that they work in administrative positions at the slaughterhouse, and you quickly forget they're in a slaughterhouse at all <laughs> because they're mostly in offices. And so the juxtaposition between this like ethereal experience and this very gruesome job it factors in for you know the first half hour or so, but then that's about it. Uh, after which it basically becomes kind of an office comedy between two people who are somewhere on the autism spectrum and don't have a lot of emotion to spare. Um, it's an odd sort of experience that uh, is quite beautiful to look at. It has, like I said, that kind of great premise carries it for a while, but it's two hours long and just way too soft. Uh, it doesn't really get into the meat so to speak of what they have in front of them uh all right um next up okay so i as far as like new stuff i would say the tie for my favorite things that i saw at the festival obviously it's not including call me by your name which you know uh which would be the the top one my tie probably is in the fade and this one the new aki karismaki movie the other side of hope um which is very much in his in his style kind of um you know squarish throwback framing and 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 lighting um that's kind of uh it's kind of high contrast lighting but not quite noir do you know what i mean it's kind of yeah totally um i mean it his sets look like sets which is not a problem um for me uh and this one is uh it tells two stories at first one about a guy who is a traveling shirt salesman who sells his stock to open a restaurant and then another guy who is a syrian refugee who um smuggled himself to finland to helsinki uh, aboard a ship and is applying for asylum in in helsinki um in finland um and uh of course these two stories converge the guy ends up working at the restaurant that's how they converge um and I think, like I said, with um, Los Caifanes, uh, its ability that one had ability to to switch between tones uh, and still maintain coherence. This one is very much like that. It's it's a it's a comedy. It's the same sort of like dry, sort of absurdist ish comedy that you see in a lot of his films. And um, you know, you can see you can see why this is someone that Jim Jarmusch has um, loved for for decades right. at this point because they have very similar, I think, comic sensibilities and to some extent aesthetic sensibilities as well. Um, so there's a lot of very funny stuff. Um, there's a there's a sequence where the restaurant is failing and the owner is just sort of like 
open open to the employee's ideas of what can we do and um they decide very briefly to become a sushi restaurant um and they don't know anything about sushi and it's they're literally like putting uh like salted herring on top of like rice balls <laughs> and uh it's it's a it's a laugh riot but then also it's the very real story of this guy whose you know family was killed you know by a bomb in aleppo and his we get when he's being interviewed when he's applying for asylum we get without flashback we get just him telling all these stories not only of his what happened to him in aleppo but all the awful things that have happened to him and his sister just trying to get out of the area out of that area and get across europe um and you can see his pain and his anger and also very much his love for what family he has left. A big part of the plot is that he and his sister left Syria together, but have become separated. And so not only is he trying to find asylum uh, to see to in, in Finland, but he's uh, also trying to find his sister. Um, so who's, who is somewhere in Europe that he doesn't know. Um, it's, I, I should have looked up the Syrian actor's name or the guy who plays the Syrian. I don't know for sure that he is Syrian because it's a, it's an incredible performance. Um, and I can, I mean, it's, the movie is too, it just seems too timely not to, uh, not for, for someone not to release it. I don't know. You tend to follow these things. Uh, is it's there coming any, out in a couple of weeks. It's coming out in a couple of weeks. See, there you go. Um, I never know that kind of stuff. Well, we, I had actually tweeted about this recently and you retweeted my tweet about it. So I'm surprised you uh, forgot. Uh, I, 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 I did like your tweet. Okay. Um, yeah. The guy's name is Shawan Haji who plays Khaled. Uh, and it's, it's, it's terrific. So it's a, a very timely, very touching and very funny movie. And I would say, um, was Lahav his last movie? Or was I think it so. Yeah, I, I think it's an improvement on Lahav, which I think sometimes was a little bit too, I don't know, soft, a little too sappy. Yeah, that's kind Agreed. of funny. Agreed. I, I saw it on a plane. Lahav? Yeah. Uh, we, were you going to talk about it on the movie journal? Or did you did you talk about it on the movie journal? I don't think we had the movie journal at the time. Oh, okay. Um, I think I was flying to New Zealand in 2012. Uh, okay, yeah. So um, The Other Side of Hope is really great. Okay. All right. Uh, next up for me is a movie called Pendular, um, which is a familiar kind of festival film and that's about uh, two people hanging out and having incredibly graphic sex from time to time. Uh, but the two people in this case are a dancer and a sculptor, so there's always something interesting to look at, even even when they're not having graphic sex. Um, you know, she's working out dance routines, he's sculpting very elaborate things and they're sharing this apartment slash workspace. Uh, the film opens with them kind of dividing the place in two so that they have their separate zones. His naturally seemed to take up more space. What with the sculpture, whereas she's just one person. Um, and so the film kind of explores them as they butt heads about that. And then as they're living in this unconventional space, their social life, it's kind of a hangouty film. Uh, it's light in a lot of ways or soft rather would be a better way to put it because it's, I think still dramatically oriented. It's not terribly comedic, but it's a very engaging watch because of that her dance routines are really incredible. She does this whole routine with a chair that seems like half improvised. You don't realize there's an audience watching her until like halfway through the routine. You think she's just kind of figuring this out as it goes along. Um, but even knowing it's like a developed thing, which you'd have to be just sitting there watching it as part of the movie. Uh, it's incredibly, uh, ornate and 
lovely and beautiful. Um, yeah, I don't remember much about the movie because it was the second movie I saw on the first night and I was quite late. Uh, but yeah, I don't know that it also come out. So I don't know that there's a lot of good in me talking about it much more. Uh, well, maybe you gin up some uh, interest here on the podcast. <laughs> what was the title again? Pendular. Pendular. Yes. Well, Pendulet. Right. It could be Pendulet. Maybe that'll get a uh, release. <laughs> let's, change, let's change that title. Okay. Pendulet. Let's uh, call him up. You talking about a performance in front of an audience reminded me we forgot to talk about the greatest scene in Happy End. I know. I thought the, about mentioning it, but it is <laughs> the karaoke scene. I, I, yeah, I guess we can mention it. I feel like it's one of those things left best discovered, but yeah, it's in the trailer apparently. Oh, is it? Okay. I well, the then never mind. Uh, yeah, it's, it's just a guy singing uh, "Chandelier" by Sia at karaoke. But he's like this totally like disengaged, socially awkward, like just ne'er do well. He's like the ultimate like rich snob's son. He's kind of like a Trump kid actually in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah. uh, just doesn't give a shit about anything except himself. And he's like kind of half singing, but elaborately dancing to chandelier. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's very funny. Yeah. All right. Um, oh, you're up again. Yes. With a movie that is coming out quite soon. Uh, Guillermo del Toro's the shape of water, uh, which I think is extraordinarily good. I think it's his best film to date. Um, I haven't seen like Kronos or mimic, which he, basically disowned uh, so i don't wouldn't count that one too much he did he, did he disowned that uh incorrectly oh really it's a, it's a great movie <laughs> i don't know if it was a great movie but it's a fun it's fun all right for that genre i think it's sure definitely above average yeah and then chronos is uh good sometimes very good i don't necessarily love it though okay i think for the most part i find that his films are better i don't know they just never lack a certain coherence that there's never really the dramatic or tonal through line through them that it quite carries me. I thought um, Crimson Peak definitely had that, like maybe to its detriment even. Interesting. To its detriment. Well, no, no, no. I, I still liked it, but, yeah. I, but I know that a lot of people who even, even understand, even knowing the hammer connection, right. Still just like, all right. Yeah. You don't have to hit every emotional beat home. Like let's hurry this up. I didn't necessarily feel that way, but I know a lot of people were, found the film frustrating and a bit uh, not meandering if anything just like way too detailed in every meandering isn't necessarily what i mean i guess i i just mean it might even be that too detailed thing that there's not like a pace you can kind of feel like with really great films you can feel the filmmaker kind of guiding you through the film i feel like he's trying to hit various beats that he wants to hit but doesn't quite know how to get from beat to beat i could see that and it could be that he's taking too much time on one or not enough from getting from one to the other he is a, a director who's very great, who makes great sequences. Yes. And then puts them all together. And because the sequences are great, you're like, oh, that was a really great movie. But I, I do know what you mean. There's a, they there's tend a not to really stick with me. The overall thing doesn't necessarily stick with me. Yeah. yeah but I'll, the individual I'll, scenes, which of course, great movies that tends to be how it works as well. But, uh, I think it's arguable how much his movies like work as a larger whole. And I'm a fan. Yeah. I yeah. like his stuff a lot. I think this one comes at least the closest to working as a larger whole that I've seen from him so far. Um, you still haven't watched devil's backbone, right? I still have not. Well, the listener sent you a, a blu-ray no less. Right? That's right. Yes. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, uh, you missed the time of year. You, you should have watched it in Halloween time. I was planning on, uh, did you call did you say Halloween times? <laughs> hey, all right. How exciting. I like that We branded that well enough. All right. I'm sorry. You were saying, no, that's right. Uh, so this is about a, uh, what's her name? Sally Hawkins plays a janitor who is mute. Uh, she's working in some kind of government facility in 1962. Uh, she's, 
partnered up is probably a wrong way to put it for as a janitor duty, but she works alongside uh, Octavia Spencer, who is more than happy to fill the conversational space. They have a great relationship uh, where Sally Hawkins doesn't seem overburdened by uh, Octavia Spencer's constantly unloading on her. Uh, she seems happy for the company. And Sally Hawkins also lives next door, eh, next door to Richard Jenkins, who's uh, an elderly, lonely uh, gay man who has trouble kind of reaching out and connecting with people because it being 1962, there isn't really uh, an outlet for such things. Um, so it's kind of about all these people who are in various ways isolated by society, but uh, Del Toro wisely doesn't hit that theme too hard so that by the time uh, this amphibious creature, a uh, friend of the show, Doug Jones, is introduced, um, he feels a part of their world, but not, it's not like Del Toro is constantly reminding you that these are all, you know, societal outcasts. It's just, they feel like they naturally kind of all fit together. Um, and much more so in the case of, uh, Sally Hawkins character and the amphibious man, uh, who fall in love. Uh, I think that's the one area of the film that I'm less convinced by their kind of infatuation is very quickly rushed through so they can get to the rest of the film. Um, but I think the rest of them carries it well enough because it eventually gets to the place where she and her friends have to break him out of this government facility in what Del Toro uh, is aware is the worst conductor plan for breaking somebody out of a government facility. Uh, but I think the film incorporates that and uses it to its advantage. It shows how quickly the plan goes wrong and how much it relies on kind of convenience to wrap it all up. Hmm. Um, so it's a very fun sequence. Uh, and the rest of the film is just them trying to keep the creature hidden. Uh, in her apartment and leaves some very beautiful, very lovely sequences and some very funny ones, some very moving ones, some very horrifying ones when the amphibious man eats a cat. Uh, oh. <laughs> I like cats. Well, I have two of them. And so, luckily so did Richard Jenkins. Mm. Um, uh, but yeah, I, it's... Uh, what was I going to say before we got on the subject of cats? Um, Doesn't matter. Aaron cats. We passed that a long um, time ago. No, uh, like, <laughs> like Del Toro's other films, it incorporates sequences of horror, but you really like that joke. Didn't you? I was, pr- uh, you know what? It happened quickly and <laughs> I didn't appreciate it. At the time. <laughs> uh, it incorporates sequences of horror, but it's mostly kind of a fairy tale fantasy film. Uh, Michael Shannon kind of plays the big government heavy who has to break up their whole plan. Uh, but I think, even his character is given more due than those type of characters usually are. He's shown to be uh, incredibly perverted, which is uncomfortable to watch, but I think gives his character an edge that most filmmakers wouldn't kind of, they'd be happy to just chalk him up to, uh, you know, overreaching government type and that'd be enough. But because we see some of his home life, because we see, get a sense of where he was at before this facility, uh, his character comes across more nuanced. It has kind of the familiar Del Toro thing of his body slowly deteriorating the more evil he gets, hmm. uh, which Del Toro loves to hit on. Um, and so, yeah, I was really pleased with the film in general, in part because it's being put out as an awards bid, but it's still very much a Del Toro movie. It's still very gross in some parts and uh, very weird in quite a lot of others. Um, but ultimately, incredibly moving. I mean, the audience was on its feet, I think, with good reason, not only because when I saw Del Toro was there in attendance, but I think people were, you could tell the audience was very moved by it. So I, I hope uh, more people will be when it comes out, I think, in early December? I think it's December 1st. Watch out. Very early December. Yeah. Now, what kind of what kind of awards 
type of stuff you think? Well, I'm really hoping it'll be in those technical categories. Uh, Mm. I feel like it has a very robust Mm. production design. How's that script? Is that script okay? I feel like the script's pretty pretty solid. I don't know if it'll be solid enough for that branch, but and uh, Octavia Spencer sounds like she's got a lot of a lot of. I don't think it's gonna be enough, but the I know Academy does like her. Yeah, I have. uh, I've heard that like. She's consistently good, but doesn't have like the the big scene that they often want a supporting yeah. actor or actress. To she have. comes close to having that scene, which okay. is maybe more frustrating. For yeah, that yeah, type thing. Mm. All right, noted. Um, next up for me, I saw uh, the new film from Agnieszka Holland, who's probably in terms of cinema best known for Europa Europa, which is at this point over twenty five years old, I guess, um, but is also. Um, I know her in more recent years chiefly as a television director. She's worked extensively on episodes of The Wire and Treme and some other stuff, but definitely has a relationship with David Simon. Uh, anyway, her, this uh, this film is called Spore, and uh, it is unf- my, my 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 feeling when I left the movie was uh, I think what I said was I was disappointed because the movie was a little over the top, and then. At the end, it got way over the top, and I was very much into that, <laughs> but it was too little too late by mm. that point. Unfortunately, the movie, like, it's kind of a... It, I mean, so much of the movie is kind of silly, and it doesn't sustain... It's like two hours and ten minutes long. It's way longer than it needs to be. Basically, it's an animal rights-minded movie, but the way that it approaches that is by telling kind of a familiar, like, serial killer mystery story, but the main character is uh, it's in this small Polish town. um, And the main character is this woman who is way more concerned with animals than with the bodies of local officials (laughs) and criminals that keep turning up bludgeoned to death in the woods. Uh, And so it, it does like this. It it sort of has a sense of humor about like, and it's beautiful, uh, beautifully um, shot. um, uh, But it, it has this, idea of giving you a scene that you're used to seeing in this kind of movie, but with a twist because it's about animals. Like one of the funny, I laughed. I, I don't know if the audience was on the same wavelength as I was, cause I laughed really hard at this part where she, it's sort of a play on the idea of like, think about gone baby gone when they go into that bar and everyone like, no one wants to talk to them and everyone yeah. like looks at them. It's that, except it's her going to a farm and all the horses are looking at her suspiciously. <laughs> and I laughed really hard cause it seemed really intentional yeah. the way that it was framed. Like she gets out of her truck and the horses are like, like turning their heads. <laughs> um, uh, and there's, there's a number of things like that that I thought were, uh, were really, um, interesting, but basically it's just, it just drags on far too long. Um, and there's too much, uh, dead air between the weird comic bits. <laughs> there's a part where, uh, there's a local official, a young local official, like government employee who's sympathetic to the animal rights causes. And so he, he invites this, our main character and um, uh, a local woman who works at a thrift store who are friends over for dinner so they can talk about animal rights or whatever. And <laughs> the younger woman brings him as a gift, a gigantic like stuffed swan <laughs> for some reason. And they show up at his apartment and he's like a, dedicated like hyper hyper minimalist like he only owns 80 <laughs> items total and if he buys something new he has to like get rid of so he like bought like, he bought three wine glasses for the dinner party and had to get rid of three things that he owned hmm. um there's like it's a lot of funny bits like that but i would like to i feel like someone needs to go into this movie with a with a machete and make it like a sort of a, a weird quick 
funny like 90 minute movie instead of a 130 minute movie anyway um you're up all right uh next up for me is thelma the new film by joaquin trier uh who's probably i think it's probably still most famous for oslo august 31 mm-hmm. i mean louder than the bombs came out last year and I always meet people who see it, but I feel like nobody really talks about it when he comes up. That's the one people tend to mention, I guess, but, um, I don't feel like it got as widely praised as I think it deserved. Some people in this room might disagree. Yeah, it's just okay. <laughs> um, his new film Thelma should at least sound more interesting on the surface. It's about a young woman who, uh, is fresh into college, uh, falls in love with another girl in her class and quickly develops uh, some kind of uh, supernatural uh, super powers of some kind uh, that are ill-defined until towards the very end, so I won't define them much further. Uh, but she, uh, the main character comes from kind of a repressive Christian background uh, that she takes seriously as a matter of faith, but less so... Uh, as a matter of uh, dogma, I guess. Um, it's indicated quite well early on when she's talking with her parents about their friends, who some of whom think, you know, are creationists and feel the earth was only created 6,000 years ago. And she's like, well, isn't that ridiculous? And that's contrasted with scenes of her talking with her friends where she's earnestly defending the existence of God. So I think it gives a good sense of where she's coming from and why she would feel that she wants to reach out in some ways or extend herself, but also kind of feel bound up in other ways. Um, but the film is less concerned with, uh, the, uh, gay narrative than it is with the way her powers are developing and the way they're realized on screen is really quite fantastic. And I think ultimately it kind of builds to a very unusual coming out narrative that is not, I think, Holy, I don't know. It's not entirely on the side of like, just because she's broken away from this repressive Christian background, everything's solved for her kind of thing. Um, there's things about her that are very controlling and, uh, very, uh, in her own sort of way, dogmatic, um, that I think the film explores very well. And by the end left me with, more, I know it's a, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's sort of a trite thing to say more questions than answers, but, uh, that's the way I felt. I really didn't know how the film felt about its main character or the story it was telling, which is really a relief for the kind of social dynamic film that I think we've seen a thousand times before. Okay. Um, the next thing on my list is going back to older films. This is uh, the uh, another one from the 1967 batch. I saw Frederick Wiseman's, I think, first film, uh, mm-hmm. Titty Cut Follies. Have you guys both seen it? Yeah. No. Okay. Um, I, 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 I'm starting to... I'd never seen it before, and I'm starting to arrive at the conclusion that maybe this guy's stuff is just not for me. I thought with the newer stuff, it was, it was the length, but I just don't... I don't get his... It, uh, it feels his movies feel like haphazard. It's, okay. it's a bunch of like he hangs out for a while and takes a bunch of different shots and then uh, picks some and puts them together. And I don't ever seem to understand what he's getting at. Like, I don't feel like I have a sense of how this it, it's at a mental a psychiatric institution. This movie, I don't feel like I got a sense of 
the experience of being a patient or the experience of being an employee or what the, how the institution performs. It just seemed like a bunch of disconnected uh, shots of things going on. And uh, I don't know. I think the, the stuff I found most fascinating in terms of a documentary from 1967 is how, as opposed to 50 years later, how unaccustomed people are to having cameras in their face right. and how the people behave you know, and you get, you see a lot of, especially the, the employees of the institution because they're more just mentally present. Um, you see some like performance creep into like just the way that they talk. And well, the one guy, the one, I think, I don't know if he's like the head guard, you know, I'm talking about the guy who's constantly singing. Yes. Yeah. He, he clearly <laughs> is like a ham who oh, like, yeah. would probably be the star of his community theater troupe if, uh, if he were, uh, you know, if he, if he were a member of such a thing. Um, but even then, like there's the part where they play, they play a game that is like literally just a woman holds a bullseye, a big bullseye up and one by one, the inmates, not inmates, sorry. I think of Shutter Island, the patient, <laughs> um, walk up with a piece of like tape and try to like they're literally, it's not. It's like darts, except they're walking right up to it and trying to put the tape hmm. in the bullseye, and most of them can't. Right. Um, and that's that's it's it's fascinating. Um, but even then, I see. I feel like the woman holding the thing is kind of putting on a show. It kind of reminds me of when you watch Cops, which I sometimes, I don't know if it's hate watch. I sometimes will like Spike as long as Spike still exists until it becomes Paramount TV, whenever that happens, um, shows cops marathons. And I'm, I, I, I can't tear my eyes away from it, even though I hate it. Um, but I do feel like you can tell the cops are doing their job the way they want their job to be seen in front of the camera. Right. Do you know what I mean? And I felt like that a lot of the way, uh, a lot of the time with titty cut follies. But I think that's, what's interesting about it is that, this is the way they want their job to appear and it still appears horrible. <laughs> like we still see how thoroughly mistreated the patients are, how they're in the case of that game you point out kind of exploited in a lot of ways mm-hmm. and kind of the jolliness, which with, with which they go through their job is incredibly disturbing. I found, but I mean, what else are you supposed to do? I mean, they're not, I mean, yeah, it is definitely when you see the conditions they live in, uh, the, the patients it's, um, pretty disgusting that i mean these are and some of these are criminals right like, um uh like especially my my favorite i want some of my favorite character my, my favorite subject is the russian guy who is a paranoid schizophrenic who talks constantly right um and he like came from he was transferred to this from an actual like prison prison because he was a criminal um and but even even them being criminals like the the living quarters are um unconscionable to me but as far as like the way they the staff interacts with them it kind of like if you're interacting with people who aren't who aren't engaging with reality all day every day i mean what are you supposed to do i guess is what i'm saying they're not not beating them you know they're and like you know when we see the guy fed through a tube like it's very graphic and disturbing but it's also like they're keeping the guy alive. He's not eating, even though we know that he dies. Yeah, I guess I just, there's a certain callousness that they approach them as. And I understand that that's in some ways like a natural human response to being surrounded by that daily, but it's also, I think it's rough to be confronted with it. 
Okay. It's interesting. It is an interesting conversation to listen to having not seen the film, but knowing David, that you worked at an elder care facility for a mm-hmm. while and, uh, specifically one that was known for its Alzheimer's care. So there was yeah. an entire wing that was people who were, you know, very much out of touch, you know, and deeply senile. Did this film like resonate with you on that level? Did I mean, you find I, I, any at the time? No, but okay. hearing Scott talk about it, I feel <laughs> yeah. like I do understand how you like you become, I mean, when you're around people who aren't hearing or aren't engaging yeah. with what you're saying, um, you, you do bring on, take on some routines and, and, uh, mannerisms that maybe would appear callous to someone who isn't there mm-hmm. all the time, but it's, Really, it's like self, you know, mental self protection. I think. Yeah. Um, and I did like uh, again. I I I don't want to sound like the conditions were. You know, it's to me it is it is cruel to take people who are mentally ill and stick them in essentially like jail cells um, with not even like bars like you see in old movies like the kinds with the big door that slammed. Mm, You've got yeah. one window in the door and one window at the back top wall. Um, that definitely upset me, and that is not the way, you know, that's certainly not the way it was at the elder care facility where I worked. <laughs> you know, people had, you know, full, like, rooms and beds and everything, um, and the and um, at least some freedom, with, you know, within, anyway. Uh, you know it sounds like this uh, mental hospital needed was a Patch Adams. Someone to come in and just be like, hey, what, what is this person's name? I want to know his name. And they're right. like, I don't know his name. But, you know, I just, he's a crazy guy. That's all that matters. <laughs> but we do know their, their name. I mean, they know their names. I can't remember. I don't remember is Vladimir, the, the Russian guy, uh, who I just love. Cause he's kind of like, I mean, he, he's constantly arguing with the doctors about why he shouldn't be there. Mm. But the nature of his disease is that he's just, all he's doing is making the case that he yeah. is not well, you know, that yeah. his, his arguing that his paranoid schizophrenia is not a problem for him is coming across in a way that is like, clearly he's having a paranoid schizophrenia <laughs> yeah, episode right, right yeah. now. Uh, that was fascinating. And the guy, and also Bravo to the guy, like for, he speaks, like, he's Russian, but he speaks English more than better than most English speakers. I know he's <laughs> incredibly eloquent. Uh, anyway, um, well, we, this was an interesting conversation. How do you feel about it? It has a very funny end title card. You got to give it that. What is the end title card? I don't know. It's where it says something like, because what's it, Massachusetts? It's like the state of Massachusetts requires that we note that the uh, conditions of the facility have changed since the production of this film. Next title card. The conditions of this facility have changed since the production of this film. (laughs) (laughs) That's nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's very dry. Yeah. Um, All right. And I think, are you taking Last up. I guess so. Uh, last film for me and for this episode is called Walking Past the Future. It's a Chinese drama. I don't recall who directed it or who stars in it, so we're just going to leap on ahead. David's going to look it up and try to pronounce some Chinese names. This should be interesting. <laughs> um, uh, it's it, The setup of it is not one that I would automatically thought I would have liked, but I end up absolutely loving this film. Uh, it's about a young woman who works in a microchip factory, in China, uh, whose family is very poor. Her uh, father, uh, I think, becomes injured early on. In any case, can't work at his job in construction anymore, which is lucky because the 
job he was working on, the building comes down like the next day. Uh, so he would have been just completely killed. But at any rate, they're still in dire financial straits. They live in a rather large city. So they decide to move back to a smaller city or not a smaller city, a smaller town that they're from, uh, that they have some claim to land only to find that that claim is no longer valid. And they're essentially allowed to work the land for very little money, but they're not terribly good at it because they're from the city and can't really work the land. Uh, so she then returns back to the city to work at the microchip factory, which is slowly shutting down. Uh, and in the meantime, gets involved with the, uh, drug trial trade and, uh, starts taking up, uh, some shifts here and there to spend the night and test out drugs for a considerable sum of money. Um, but at considerable risk to herself, especially the more the factory starts to become something she can't rely on. And the more the drug trials become something she can, as long as she knows how to work the system. Um, but it's very, I think patiently, but also very movingly told. There's a lot of melodrama in the plotting in terms of, uh, the medical influence and just, you know, when certain symptoms crop up, when, uh, her economic conditions become more dire. Uh, it's very, I think, smartly plotted, but also very emotionally wrought. And just the more she kind of digs herself in this hole, the more she can't dig herself out, but is also bound more tightly to other people than she was arguably at the beginning of the film. Uh, and it gets to an ending that's very ambiguous, but I think closes out the film emotionally on such a beautiful note that I was practically in tears by the end of it. I really love the film and it's a shame that it probably won't get a release because it's Chinese and doesn't have any famous Chinese actors. Not only does it, so the director's name is Lee Rui Jin. Um, there is, IMDb has no cast information. Oh wow. So there you go. Yeah. That's how unfamous the cast yeah. is. But IMDb didn't deem them worthwhile. All right. I'm including, uh, well hopefully it'll show at a festival near you. There we go. Um, this was fun. Uh, it was a fun episode. This was a fun AFI fest, although not the best that I've been to. Um, so I want to just make, I just want to restate here. So, okay, David, your favorite film of the festival was, okay. Uh, let's it, say new film, your favorite yeah, new film. Um, not counting call me by your name. Cause I didn't actually see it there. Um, okay. it's a tie between in the fade and the other side of hope. Okay. And your least favorite was, uh, Jim, Jim and Andy. Andy. I'm sorry, Jim and Andy, the great beyond featuring a very special contractually obligated mention of Tony Clifton. <laughs> I did right. that without looking, by the way, <laughs> I've memorized the name of this stupid movie. It's pretty impressive. All right. All Scott, right. Scott, Scott your favorite? favorite. Well, I'll start with the least favorite. Cause I like to end on positive. Fair least, least favorite was Hannah. Uh, favorite was bright sunshine Inn, which will be out next spring from IFC. Okay. Fantastic. All right. Um, you can find us at battleship That's where you can find, um, I'm assuming by the time this episode goes up a number of these reviews. Um, right. Yeah. Um, now that I'm not festing anymore, I'll yeah. probably some time. I intended to have more, but um, yeah, I've been fucking busy. Um, <laughs> so, so suddenly put upon. Yeah, no, it's, it's been a rough week, actually. Um, yeah, but anyway. Um, but my review of Spore is up, and hopefully I'll have some more up by the time you're hearing this. Um, that kind of rhymes. Um, my so, review of Spore is up, and soon I'll have some more up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess that kind of rhymed. Kind of rhymed. Yeah. I'll I'm take a, it. I'm a regular old kind of M&M over here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so old. I love that. Well done. I like all these characters people are playing. Um, okay, so BattleshipRetention.com is where you find uh, a lot of shit. Um, 
and uh, including the premium episodes, you can support us by buying all of our content. Mm-hmm. You should do that. Yeah, this emotional support is all well and good, but uh, <laughs> fi- you know, I can't pay the bills with emotional support. Yeah, seriously, uh, we're not asking you to donate. Like, we have shit for you, like content, exactly. hours and hours of premium uh, episodes and stuff for you to buy. Please, please do that. Stuff like festival coverage, um, it gets covered by that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, as of this week, I am all 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 set for Sundance in terms of. Uh, flights, lodging, and of course, most importantly, press credentials. <laughs> um, so I'm all set. Um, uh, I don't have my shuttle from the airport to Park City. That's the easy part. Yeah, that's easy. Um, I can do that a few days before usually. Anyway, um, so yeah, battleshippretension.com. You can email us at david at com or tyler at battleshippretension.com. You can uh, follow me, David, on Twitter at DaveyPretension. You can follow Tyler at TylerPretension. Uh, you have another podcast, Tyler. It's called More Than One Lesson. That's right. Um, as mentioned on the recent podcast, The Next Picture Show, where I guess... Uh Tasha's husband is a big fan of more than one lesson, which is very exciting to hear about. That is very exciting. Um, And uh, so a lot of people tweeted that at me and I was like, Oh, that's that's great. Um, But uh, yeah, uh, since uh, I was uh, out of the country, I still had episodes scheduled. So uh, Josh and I talk about the best picture of 1951 in American in Paris. I did an episode about the film Paddington um, with the companion film, the terminal. And then, uh, the most recent one is, uh, a best of pictures, Minnesota about all about Eve, which is a yeah. marvelous film. I yeah. absolutely adore it. Are you excited that Paddington two is secure and it is coming out now? <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> um, and, um, what else? Is that it? Uh, Scott, where can people find you in your work on the internet? Uh, on Twitter at rail of tomorrow. And I've plugged everything else for the last three weeks. So nothing's changed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, thanks for, uh, for filling in for Tyler. Oh, of course. These- last few weeks i'm glad we, made, uh, glad we had you both on right for an easy transition for yes. both you guys and for the listener <laughs> yes. thank you for that baton i appreciate it <laughs> sure i know it's i know it's incredibly large for a baton it's really more of a cane but oddly I'm uh, slick yeah. as well can I, can I tell the listeners scott did come in and try to sit down in tyler's chair because that's where he's been sitting the last three weeks i didn't realize it was anybody's chair <laughs> That's the way, yeah, that's the way it goes right here. Um, Okay, so uh, thanks for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 